Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Mormonism, its history, its practices, its missionaries on bicycles. Mormonism is one of the fastest growing religions in the world, and it was born right here in America. And it's a very American religion, partly in the sense that it has a lot of good people in it, and also a much darker past than it would like to admit. We're going to talk a lot about its founder, Joseph Smith, who he was and how he became the leader of a new religion in the early 19th century. We're going to go over the church's history of polygamy, a practice banned well over a century ago by the LDS but something still currently practiced by way too many members of fundamentalist Mormon offshoots, such as the FLDS. What is the FLDS? Who is its leader, Warren Jeffs? Why is he in prison? Why is he such a flippin' creep? Why am I saying flippin'? Oh my heck! We'll talk about the FLDS as well, and I'll do my best to illustrate how modern mainstream Mormonism is very different from its black sheep FLDS little brother. I'll try to be fair, but also not going to take it easy on Mormonism in today's Nimrod approved. You shouldn't talk about religion, but I'm going to anyways, theological edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, meat sacks, you beautiful bastards. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck, my new horror cast where I try and scare the shit out of my wife, Lindsay, sorry about the language, queen of the suck every week with two tales of paranormal terror comes out tomorrow, Tuesday, September 17th at midnight. Two episodes drop tomorrow, then one every week after that. Stick around to listen to the scared to death trailer at the end of today's suck to get a better feel for the show. And then love it, listen, rate, and subscribe. Also, September 19th is Time Sucks' birthday. Three years. This strange weekly shindig started off in 2016. Man, what a ride it has been. Three years ago, I was recording an episode about the Lizard Illuminati at my kitchen coffee table in Santa Monica a few months before mo moving to Coeur Idaho, thinking that my stand-up career could possibly wind down to a close. 
Now Time Suck has the Suck Dungeon, a thriving Patreon podcast called The Secret Suck, an engaged online community, uh, most notably a large private Cult of the Curious Facebook group, three full-time awesome employees, not counting my wife and I, and it's sending all kinds of new people to my stand-up shows, which are now more fun than ever. So sincerely, thank you all so flipping much for caring about this podcast. It has truly changed my life and changed me. Hail you, Time Sucker. We had about 1,000 total downloads in the first 30 days. Last month, we had 2 million total listens. Uh, and we're also giving to charity every month now. We're doing that for a while. Did not see that come when I started this little thing off. We're donating $3,000 this month to the nonprofit Youth on Record. Thank you, Space Lizards. Youth on Record helps Colorado youth discover how their voice and value can create a better world. They're committed to ensuring that the youth they serve graduate from high school and are ready to enter the workforce, transition to college, enter advanced technical training and careers. Their programs empower over a thousand teens in some of Denver's most vulnerable communities to make life choices that positively impact their future by teaching them to develop the coping tools, inspiration, and tenacity to succeed in today's world and to become leaders of tomorrow. To find out more, go to impulseyouthearts.org. Link in the episode description. Hope and Thalia Hall was fun in Chicago. Had to record this on the 12th due to touring shows this week in Phoenix at Copper Blues Live. September 19th to the 21st, live Ant Hill Kids Suck podcast on the 21st. And Nimrod wants you to be there. Lucifina will be pleased as well. Indianapolis, West Palm Beach, Tampa, coming up right after that. Check out dancummins.tv for the full 2019 tour schedule. Uh, now let's talk about jackets real quick. Fall is dang near flipping here. And if you just want to stay warm and rep the suck, get the first time suck jacket. Get the Time Suck Atomic Varsity Jacket today, black and gunmetal heather, a 75-25 cotton poly blend. Also a 250% and 150% moon rock and atomic gold blend for strength, flash, magical powers. Wearing this jacket is guaranteed to make you feel like you're in showbiz. You're on the showbiz varsity squad. No more sitting on the bench. No more getting butt splinters. No more, no more head wounds from falling asleep on the sideline in the fourth quarter. Get your curious self in the game, meat sack, with this beauty. Hail Nimrod. And now, let's get to sucking on today's topic. Forgive me, Moroni, but this must be done. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you to the Patreon spaces for voting this subject into existence. But holy heck, might just cost me some listeners. This is one of those episodes that I get really excited for. Actually, it's been uh, possibly my favorite one so far to research. Uh, but also, you know, slash dread it. And, and Zach uh, Scriptkeeper Flannery did an awesome job with so much research as well. Like, really good job. Loving digging, in, uh, digging into theology. Religion in general fascinated me my entire life. However, there's a good reason people say not to talk about politics or religion if you don't want to, you know, make stuff weird or tick people off, which I get. You know, you're messing with people's spiritual or emotional core. People tend to be very passionate about both. A lot of people are quick to distance themselves from those who they, you know, know for sure don't appreciate their political or religious views. They can't get over it. We've done other religious subjects, but they've been, you know, uh, relatively fringy cults or hate groups masquerading as religion. See the Westboro Baptist Church for that one. Or, you know, terrible things done a long time ago under the name of religion that, you know, now members of that religion agree was horrible. See the Spanish Inquisition or the Salem Witch Trials. The subject of Mormonism is different. It's now fairly mainstream, but still considered by many to be a cult. It's in that awkward teenage phase of a spiritual belief system caught between the early years when the belief in anything other than the established religions of the day is considered cultish by most and being big enough to have 
you know, enough followers to push its way into being accepted as a full-fledged, not a cult at all, I promise, belief system. I don't want to offend our Mormon listeners with this suck. Mormons are some of the finest people I've ever met. I've never met a religion with more family-minded people than Mormons, and I'm not alone. According to a comprehensive 2012 Pew Research report, 81% of Mormons say being a good parent is one of the most important things in life. Hail Nimrod. And 73% say the same about having a successful marriage. Hail Lucifina. By comparison, half of all U.S. adults say being a good parent is one of the most important things in life, and only a third say having a successful marriage is of utmost importance. No religion, in my experience, is currently more family-focused than Mormons. Love Mormons. Salt Lake City has been my favorite market to perform stand-up comedy shows in for over 10 years. Love a lot of other cities, but I've always had the most fun in Salt Lake City. The crowds are fantastic. And I fear I may lose some of those fans with this suck. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I've probably already offended some Mormon listeners, though, by referring to them as Mormons. Last year, in August of 2018, current LDS president, 95-year-old Russell M. Nelson, insisted that, quote, Mormons and non-Mormons alike stick to the term the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And now you're not supposed to call it the Mormon Church, Mormons, Mormonism, or even the abbreviation LDS. That's too many words. I'm not going to say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every time I need to address this group of believers. Not in this suck. The church has since recognized that people do need more concise terminology to use on a regular basis. They have suggested that people use the name the Restored Church of Jesus Christ when they want to, you know, shorten it up. And Russ, not going to do that. Sorry, bro. To me, that that title reeks of self-righteous, arrogant nonsense coming out of the 95-year-old noodle of someone completely out of touch with the non-Mormon world. To me, that's like asking you all to, uh, you know, stop calling Time Suck, Time Suck. Instead, I want you to call it the one and only true podcast, Time Suck, superior to all other audio content. And not only that, not only do I want time suckers to call it that, I want people who don't even listen to this show to refer to it by that same title. As you'll find out, the LDS church is founded on the belief that the Bible needed some updating, that the original Bible had been corrupt or corrupted, excuse me, that all of the other Christian churches were getting Christ's message wrong. That's why Joseph Smith founded it in the first place and that only Mormons have received all of Christianity's message. So again, Russ, uh, not calling your church the restored church of Jesus Christ because that's incredibly insulting to the entire rest of Christianity. Uh, Sorry, you don't see it that way. If you're a devout Mormon, I'm gonna tell you right now that I suspect, again, you're not gonna like a lot of what I have to say about the origins of your faith. Uh, So if hearing a real analytical, not church approved look into your founding, the founding of your church isn't something you have a lot of interest in, maybe, maybe stop now. More listeners have written in about wanting to help me on this topic than I've ever had write in before for any other topic by far. A lot of you have wanted to make sure I deliver this uh, quote unquote correctly. Many Mormons have written in wanting me to not be unfairly harsh on the church, saying that there is a lot of anti-Mormon propaganda out there, and there is some. Many other former Mormons have written in saying that the church is a manipulative cult. Don't believe anything members of the church tell you. Don't go easy on them. Well, in the name of prep time, in the name of trying to stay as objective as possible, I've taken all the advice into consideration, but have reached out to no one. Trying to keep things in-house to be as fair as I can. Now, if you're a Mormon, you're still listening. Thank you. Good for you. No, again, I have a lot of love for you. Also know that it would be intellectually dishonest for me to take a softer approach to this topic than, uh, you know, than I have on many others. I've gone so hard on many others. Also know I've tried to be very, you know, or tried very hard to, to look at sources and to fact check claims by going to the Mormon church's own website in the name of, you know, making sure that it isn't just anti-Mormon propaganda. 
Uh, for sources, if you happen to check notes on the Time Suck app, you'll notice we, we didn't just turn to websites critical of the church. We uh, checked a fair amount of pro-church websites as well. I will say LDS has the best website in the God game. Seriously, I'm jealous. It clearly costs six figures, if not seven, to build and develop churchofjesuschrist.org. Super sick site, slick, poppy, easy to navigate, great color scheme, great font selection. Navigation is intuitive. It's one of the best organizational websites for a religion, company, whatever that I've ever seen. Uh, well done, Mormons. Also a very hardworking group. In addition to the official church website, there's a ton of other websites ran by various pro-Mormon organizations working hard to get their version of their narrative out to the public. You can access so much of what Mormonism is about on the official church site, including the full text of the Mormon Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Those are the four canonical works of the LDS faith, by the way. And the Mormon Bible is just the King James version of the Bible used by many other Christian faiths. It just includes footnotes and cross-references to the other three canonical Mormon works, which I will describe more in a bit. And if you're a member of one of those faiths, you know, you might be saying, hey, hey, easy, Mormons are not Christian. That is an ongoing debate that will likely never end. According to that 2012 Pew Research report I already mentioned, while nearly all Mormons consider themselves Christian, 97%, only about half, 51% of U.S. adults say Mormonism is a Christian religion. After I lay out their history and beliefs, you can decide for yourself what you think. A lot of people do view Mormonism as a cult, a very offensive view to many Mormons, also a view shared by many non-Mormons. According to the same Pew Research report, when asked to volunteer the one word that best describes Mormons, the most common response from Mormons surveyed was Christian or Christ-centered, 17%. An additional 5% volunteered Jesus. The most commonly offered response by non-Mormons was cult. Only 51% of non-Mormons considered LDS, uh, the LDS church to be a religion. But is it really a cult? Well, it depends on which definition you believe in. One short definition of the difference between a religion and a cult is basically what I stated earlier. A religion is an old cult. A cult is a new religious movement. In this sense, yeah, Mormonism is still kind of culty. Still pretty new, less than 200 years old. But to be fair, I'm sure when they first got going, a lot of people thought Christianity was a cult. Same for Islam, same for Judaism and the Eastern and pagan religions as well. Now let's look at a more nuanced and thoughtful delineation between religions and cults. Cult researcher and author John Jalalich, PhD, Professor Emerita, uh, Emerita excuse me, of so sociology at California State University, Chico, has spoken about the key distinctions, explicit and implicit, between legitimate religions and cults. Here's what the well-studied Dr. Lalich has to say. A church will likely give you time to decide whether you want to join the congregation. It won't expect you to be at every service and Bible study meeting right off the bat. Cults, on the other hand, tend to cajole and barrage potential followers until they fully commit to joining. And part of this tactic is dismissing any questions that newcomers may have about the cult's inner workings. If you find that your questions aren't being answered to your, or that your questions are being turned back on you, it's probably not a legitimate group. That makes sense to me. A religion should not be afraid of questions, shouldn't have anything to hide from new members. They should be eager to spread their spiritual joy to anyone who wants to be a part of it. Does the LDS answer questions or hide their inner workings? Well, the, the answer to that is also mixed. Some will passionately say no. Others will passionately say yes. I will say when I thought about joining the Mormon church, which I did when I was 18 years old, uh, it felt very secretive to me at that time. Uh, my, my questions were not being answered. And, and I don't know, uh, sometimes they were not answered because the person I was talking to, the elder or, or the, uh, you know, the, the head of, I can't even remember the, the, the people I spoke to, but I spoke to the people who were, who were running, the, running a couple different churches and they didn't seem to either have answers or want to give them to me. Uh, Dr. Lalich also says a legitimate religion is going to have you worshiping a higher source. You are not expected to worship the living being in front of you 
or the writings of some living being as you do in a cult. Again, makes sense. Big difference between, you know, believing that we should live our lives according to the moral and spiritual guidelines laid out in a, in a book written a long time ago. And, uh, you know, difference between that and believing we should do what Steve over there sitting in the corner tells us to do. Which side does Mormonism fall on regarding this difference? Kind of both. Kind of both. But actually a little, a little bit more on the Steve side. Uh, more on that in a bit. Dr. Lalich also points out that cults control rather than guide. She says a decent religion will say, be kind to your neighbors. So when someone moves into your neighborhood, you might take them a cake, but nobody comes and checks on you to see if you've really taken them a cake. In other words, conventional religions don't constantly watch their followers to make sure that they're following their tenets exactly. But cults absolutely do. They want to control you. Finally, she says that cults make it impossible to trust fellow members as opposed to being a place for members to feel comfortable not being judged. And after studying a fair amount of cults myself here on the suck, I would add something that I guess falls under Dr. Lalich's control aspect of cults. It seems to me that cults seek to isolate you from any non-members, including family. They discourage relationships with those outside the cult unless the main point of that relationship is to indoctrinate a new member into the cult. Does Mormonism strongly discourage you from socializing outside of the church? Again, answer is mixed. Some say yes, some say no. I'll say that the Mormon church goes far above and beyond most religious groups to provide a full social schedule to its members so that they don't have to hang out with non-members if they don't want to. There's sports leagues, counseling services, private welfare system, young men and young women organizations, weekly meetings, singles organizations, on and on and on. In the young women organization, 12 and 13-year-old girls meet in what is called the beehive class. 14 and 15-year-old girls meet in the Mia Maid class. 16 and 17-year-old girls meet in the Laurel class. Once young women are 18, they attend Relief Society with the adult women in the ward. Similarly, in the young men organization, young men ages 12 and 13 attend the deacon's quorum. Age 14 and 15 attend the teacher's quorum. Age 16 and 17 attend the priest's quorum. Once a young man is 18, he's typically ordained to be an elder and will attend the elder's quorum. A few times a month, no more than once a week, on a weekday evening, all the youth in the ward meet for about an hour or hour and a half for what is called mutual. There are meetings adults can take every day of the week if they want to. There's a church-approved uh, dating site. There's an expectation of devoting a year plus of your life to missionary work, and on and on and on. If you let it, the Mormon church can be your whole life. So in that sense, a little bit cultish, but maybe not bad. I mean, if you look at it like an organization doing a good job of taking care of its members and providing members with a sense of community, with a sense of fraternity, Mormons are just knocking it out of the park. Also, many Christian churches do the same thing. Many of them just don't have the means and organization to carry out the extensive services the LDS has uh, is able to offer to its members. Lastly, know that the equation between religion and cult, not a binary one. There's no hard line between the two. It's more of a scale or a spectrum. I, th- I think personally, many major religions have a lot of cult-like aspects. Like you could argue that joining a Catholic convent to be a nun, little culty, the convent is now your whole life. I mean, that's pretty culty. Some vows and some religious orders, you know, are to cut almost all contact with your family off. Pretty culty. Do you even cult, bro? A lot of people cult. They just don't know it or want to admit it. Do I think Mormonism is a cult? Personally, not in the Scientology sense, certainly not in the Jim Jones or Branch Davidians or Order of the Solar Temple sense, but I do think it's for sure more cultish than most other Christian denominations currently. For example, Mormons believe that their president is a living prophet of God and can add to their doctrines. Pretty culty. That falls under the, let's listen to Steve. The closest Christian religious figure in terms of influence over their faithful in the rest of the Christian world is the Pope. The Pope can alter the meaning of Christian doctrine as far as interpretation. And many popes have done just that. 
Just last year, 2018, Pope Francis revised the catechism to teach that the death penalty is inadmissible and to say that the church works with determination for its abolition worldwide. And this goes directly against the previous nearly 2,000 years of church doctrine. The Catholic Church used to sentence people to death all of the time. Hello, inquisitions. A lot of witches. You know, people who didn't blindly obey the church burned at the stake by the church. Their death sanctioned by God according to the church. However, not even the Pope claims to receive prophecies that allow the Pope to alter doctrine. Not change interpretation, but rewrite it. Write in, write in some new, you know, uh, words from God. The Mormon president can do exactly that and does. Former LDS church president Harold B. Lee, who only led the church for a year and a half in 1972 and 1973 because he passed away shortly after taking over leadership. Their leaders tend to be very old. Uh, taught the only one authorized to bring forth any new doctrine is the president of the church who, when he does, will declare it as revelation from God. And it will be so accepted by the council of the 12 and sustained by the body of the church. Pretty culty. Also, bummer that Harold uh, only got to speak for God for roughly 18 months. Maybe, maybe God didn't care for what he had to say. Uh, perhaps the most famous example of a Mormon president changing church doctrine because God told him to was the mon momentous assertion of divine revelation that happened in 1978 to President and Prophet Spencer W. Kimball, who, endure, who ended, excuse me, who ended a century-long ban on black men and boys being ordained to the all-male priesthood and on women and girls entering Latter-day Saint temples. This declaration is now part of church doctrine found in the Doctrine and Covenants. This revelation happened to occur after the Mormon church had faced increasing pressure from the NAACP throughout the 1970s to stop being super racist and sexist. During the late 60s and 70s, uh, black athletes at some universities refused to compete against teams from church-owned Brigham Young University. A protest of the church had occurred in 1974 in response to the exclusion of black scouts to become leaders in church-sponsored Boy Scout troops. And then they get this, uh, you know, Seemingly pretty convenient revelation. So again, some cultish elements. Uh, certain offshoots of the main branch of the LDS church, such as the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for sure full cults. Talk about that later. Now let's get into the meat of the subject, the actual beliefs in history. Today we're going to establish what Mormon beliefs are. Then we have a big old timeline to march down that will take us through the origin story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, including the life and times of its founder, Joseph Smith. We'll talk about the church history of polygamy, and its current stance since that, uh, of course, there is, that's a topic of interest, you know, when it comes to Mormonism. And we'll establish a difference between the LDS church and the FLDS church. A lot of fascinating uh, stuff to go over today. Uh, and in honor of a variety of Mormon friends I've known over the years, as you can tell, I've been using some replacement words, replacement swears. Going to try and do that for uh, the majority of the episode. Going to stick to as much as I can until replacement swears, because no one in my experience uses more replacement swears than Mormons. Oh, my flip. Don't want to be a jack wagon. I don't want to be a swear happy PETA. <laughs> and know that no matter what I uncover at the end of the day, I wasn't there. When it comes to faith, if you want to believe in Scientology, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, you know, be a Jehovah's Witnesses or Jehovah's Witness, you know, being a little alien cult like Heaven's Gate. All right, you can do that. And you can still be a great person. Yeah, no one can prove you wrong. Uh, you know, I hope you understand that if you're, if you're not a believer in Mormonism, uh, believing in an origin story that has no more archaeological evidence of being true than the island of Atlantis having wizard battles on it or the Lemurians living inside of Mount Shasta is a pill that's a little hard to swallow. I hope you get that. Uh, and finally, if you are the member of any or other organized religion and you find yourself laughing at some of the absurdity I'm going to be pointing out today, I hope you don't think any less of Mormons for believing their beliefs. And I hope you realize that 
if the critical thinking magnifying glass was turned on your beliefs, on your religious beliefs, a lot of the same jokes could be had, right? I mean, I mean, if you had never heard of mainstream Christianity ever, never heard of it at all, suddenly a dude knocked on your door, told you that an all-powerful deity made this world and heaven and hell and then sent his literal son to earth only to have him killed so he could live forever in a sky city with streets of gold because the first lady, you know, fucked, excuse me, flipped, flipped everything up for humanity by letting a snake talk her into eating the wrong apple. And if you didn't accept that as truth, you'd be sent down to a lake of fire where you, you know, had demons torment you for eternity. Would you not think they were a complete and total wackadoodle? You know you would. If you can take emotion out of it, come on. Holy heck. Okay, now for real this time. Let's let's flip and get into it, you know? Let's get into these Mormon beliefs. The summary of this religion before going to that timeline. Uh, Mormons are a religious group that embrace concept of Christianity as well as revelations made by their founder, Joseph Smith. They primarily belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or LDS, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, has more than 15 million members worldwide. There are a few other scattered denominations. Uh, the biggest, another Mormon denomination, the uh, Community of Christ, centered in Independence, Missouri, has about a quarter of a million members. Uh, this faction split off from the LDS when there was a question of succession regarding who should take over as leader of the church following the death of Joseph Smith. Uh, the Mormon religion officially founded in 1830 when the Book of Mormon was first published. Today, the LDS church is most prevalent in the United States, Latin America, Canada, Europe, the Philippines, Africa, and parts of Oceania. As I said earlier, Mormons consider themselves Christians, but many Christians do not consider them uh, Christians. Uh, Mormons believe in the crucifixion, resurrection, and divinity of Jesus Christ, same as other Christian churches. Followers of Mormonism also claim that God sent more prophets after Jesus' death. This is different from most other Christian churches. Mormons also believe that the original church of Jesus Christ has been restored in modern times through Mormonism. A little bit of a theological middle finger to the rest of Christendom, but also not uncommon. Most Christian denominations believe that, you know, they truly get it and none of the other denominations do and they're all wrong to some degree, which I've always found pretty annoying. Uh, as I stated earlier, Mormons embrace four different texts as holy canon, the Christian Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. The Bible, self-explanatory. Uh, the Book of Mormon resembles the Bible in its length and complexity and its division into books named for individual prophets. It came to Joseph in a vision of sorts that we'll explore uh, in the timeline. It relates the history of a group of Hebrews who are said to have migrated from Jerusalem to America about 600 BC, led by a prophet Lehi. They multiplied and eventually split into two groups. One group, the Lamanites, forgot their beliefs, became heathens, were the ancestors of the American Indians. Not sure how that happened. The other group, the Nephites, developed culturally and built great cities, but were eventually destroyed by the Lamanites about 400 AD. Before that occurred, however, Jesus appeared and taught to the Nephites. Too bad he didn't teach them how to better defend themselves. That would have, you know, come in handy. Darn it to crap. I mean, fiddlesticks. Sorry about the language. I mean, Jesus is omnipotent, so he knew they'd be destroyed. Seems a little messed up. You know, Jimmy Crickets. Uh, Jesus revealed himself to the Nephites, taught them a bunch of stuff, showed them the path of salvation, and then the Nephites ended up getting flipped and obliterated by the Lamanites. That's not cool. And the future Lamanites don't even get to hear about salvation, you know, for over a thousand years after that because all the believers in the Americas are dead. What the flip? What about all those souls? My heck, JC. Seems like a pretty confusing plan. Seems less working in mysterious ways when it comes to the Lord and more just not working in an obviously good way. The Pearl of Great Price, defined by the LDS as a selection of choice materials touching many significant aspects of the faith and the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
These items were produced by Joseph Smith and were published in the church periodicals of his day. So it's, you know, based on other visions he had. The Doctrine of the Covenant is a book of scripture containing some of these names uh, they altered over the years. So if you're like, wait a minute, you called it something slightly different before. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they have changed. So I think that's the current one. The Doctrine of the Covenant, a book of scripture containing revelations from the Lord to the prophet Joseph Smith and to a few other Latter-day prophets. It's unique in scripture because it's not a translation of ancient documents. And this is the book that church presidents now get to update with their own prophecies. Another interesting belief is that according to the LDS church, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve lived, is located in Davies County, Missouri. I wonder if people in Davies County, uh, Missouri, think that. I wonder if they know that. More on that later. According to Joseph Smith's vision, all people will be resurrected and at the final judgment will be assigned to one of three degrees of glory called the celestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdoms. A small number of individuals who commit the unpardonable sin will not receive a kingdom of glory, but it will be banished to outer dark. But they will be banished to outer darkness with Satan, where they will become sons of perdition. So, what is this unpardonable sin? Well, it's how they do it in Hollywood. Showbiz. It's having your hot monkey whipped bloody with a cat of nine tails, and having your peewee stomped and poked with needles while you play buck buck. How many hands up? It's lapping up sweet peanut butter. Sweet peanut butter, butter, like a dog that hasn't been fed in a week. And if that's wrong, well, then I don't want to be right. If it keeps the man out of heaven, then I guess I'll just head down to hell where all the sweet monkey cider is extra hot. Another lick, give me a drink. Another whip, I love to stink. Another chance to crap your pants, making peanut butter, butter. Sorry about the language, listeners. Oh, my, oh my flip. That, that was freaking rough. Not cool. Gosh dang. Uh, also, that was past suck subject Albert Fish. If you're a new listener and confused, and Albert Fish is a he's a real he's a real dirty rascal, and he's incorrect. What he just said is not the unpardonable sin, but I'm sure it's frowned upon severely in Mormonism. Allow allow Joseph Smith to explain. He says all sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost. For Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost. Have the heavens opened unto him and know God and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. Jiminy crickets! I might be a son of perdition! Duck on it! An ex-girlfriend talked me into going to church and I did for a few weeks and then I didn't convert. So I was shown the word and I didn't receive it. Oh, my heck. My soul's going to rot. She killed me. It's her fault. Be gone, Lucifina. She wouldn't have shown me the way. I could have just played dumb. And, and, you know, man, am I going to, am I going to do that to you guys today? Am I going to create so many more sons of perditions or daughter? Can you be daughter of perdition? I'm so flipping mad at myself right now and my ex-girlfriend. Oh, let's talk about kingdoms. The celestial kingdom is the highest heaven. All children who die before the age of eight automatically inherit the celestial kingdom and it's the permanent residence of God the Father and Jesus Christ. So strong sales point here for anyone who either has young kids or lost young kids or lost a sibling when they were young. That's a nice touch. The terrestrial kingdom, the middle of the three degrees of glory. It is said to be for people who didn't quite get the Mormon faith thing and maybe were blinded by the craftiness of unscrupulous men. The celestial kingdom, that's the lowest of the three degrees of glory. 
This word is believed to have been made up by Joseph to describe the place in his vision of heaven where liars and sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers and whosoever loves and makes a lie go. These folks have only to stay here for a thousand years though. So that's pretty sweet. You know, then they get leveled up. <laughs> Lucky flippers. I don't get leveled up out in the Satan ring. I'll be getting my perdition, Heine, gnashed out by demons in the outer realms while a bunch of Mormon kid diddlers and adulterers and sorcerers and bullheckers are getting leveled up. So jelly. Ugh. Mormons don't recognize the Christian concept of the Trinity, God existing in three persons. Instead, they believe the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three separate gods. So in other words, unlike Christianity, which is a monotheistic religion, Mormons are technically polytheistic. Now, do Mormons consider themselves polytheistic? In my experience, I would say hard no. I would say that if I just said that to a Mormon sitting across the table from me, they'd be like, well, it's not exactly. A lot of the Mormon sites I looked at, the answers to them weren't like, no, that's not true. It was more of like, well, it's, listen, it's, 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 it's complex. It's hard to, but no, let me, uh, let me explain. And then a lot of words that really don't explain. Uh, in my experience, uh, yeah. Yeah, they would say no. To be to be really honest, I've studied Mormonism for years. You know, I started reading the, the Book of Mormon the summer after high school. My, and a lot of Mormons, I don't know how to say this without sounding very arrogant. They don't seem to understand their own doctrines very well. Uh, and I'm sure the same could be probably said for members of most, if not all, major religions. According to the fact page on fairmormon.org, Latter-day Saints are not polytheists in any reasonable sense of the term. That does not also exclude most other Christians who deny the modalist heresy or heresy. Uh, some Christians say Mormons are polytheists because they believe humans can become gods. Is that an accurate characterization of LDS belief? Trying to reduce LDS thought to a simple term or slogan in this way distorts LDS doctrine. See, I mean, that's that's just a very fancy and evasive way of saying, yep, yeah, we are we are polytheists, but we don't like to you know be classified that way because it makes us you know seem culty to, to other Christians. Another way of answering that question could have been, nope. But that, that didn't happen. Uh, FairMormon.org, by the way, nonprofit organization dedicated to providing well-documented answers to criticisms of LDS doctrine, belief, and practice. Uh, the LDS church considers Joseph Smith, who founded Mormonism, a man who will meet in a minute, uh, a modern prophet. Mormons are asked to follow a strict, healthy lifestyle that doesn't allow them to consume alcohol, tobacco, coffee, or tea. Family life, good deeds, respect for authority, and missionary work are important values in Mormonism. Mormons practice clothing rituals that include wearing special undergarments that have religious significance, known as the temple garment. The attire is worn by adult members who make sacred promises to God. Now, these garments are sometimes referred to by outsiders as magic underwear. Referring to the garments as magic undies is considered by most Mormons to be very offensive. And according to them, is similar to saying that Jewish people wear a magic hat. I wonder if anyone has ever worn the magic Mormon undies and the magic Jewish hat at the same time. Throw in a monk robe. Oh man, while you're doing all that, you might just become a master of the universe. Oh my heck. Uh, temple garments are worn by those who have participated in a temple ordinance called an endowment ceremony. The garments are worn under regular clothing, most often in the place of underwear. A lot of lot of um, rituals, a lot of rituals in, in the Mormon belief system. I did have a former Mormon write in and say that a lot of their rituals were based off of actual, uh, uh, my gosh, I shouldn't, that's why I don't wing it off my notes. Um, my God, I've talked, I did a two-parter on them. It's not a moose lodge. It's the, uh, oh my God. Freemasons? Freemasons. Man, there's too many groups out there. Thank you, Joe. Yes, that they mod that they, uh, that Joseph Smith was a Freemason and modeled a lot of the, the, you know, rituals after that. I don't, I didn't have time to check and see if that was true with all the other fact digging I was doing. But, 
it, d- it does seem like they have a lot of elaborate rituals in their group. Anyway, so these garments are produced in men's and women's versions in a variety of fabrics. The top is roughly the cut of a typical t-shirt. The bottoms are an, uh, analogous to boxer shorts reaching just above the knee. The protection afforded by the garment is symbolistic and serves as a reminder of certain promises the wearer is, is made with God. The garment is not considered to provide physical protection from harm, despite outsiders claiming that Mormons believe their garments make them bulletproof. That's not true. Uh, today, the LDS Church is headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. Although there are several Mormon settlements all over the world, the church is run by a present-day prophet, serves as the president of the church for life once they're appointed. Uh, the church's hierarchy consists of the first presidency, which consists of said president, currently Russell M. Nelson, two counselors that he appoints. Next is the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, followed by the first Quorum of the Seventy, then the stake presidency, leadership for foreign areas or quote-unquote stakes, then the ward uh, bishopric, the local clergy types, and lastly, individual members. Uh, children in the church typically baptize at eight years of age. A young man 12 years of age or older can enter into the priesthood known as the Aaronic, uh, Ar- 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 there we go, Aaronic priesthood. Those over 18 can enter into the higher Melchizedek, Melchizedek the Melchizedek priesthood. I went to a meeting of the Aaronic priesthood in a Mormon church in Marcin, Idaho in the summer of 1995. A guy asked me and the other young male attendees if I wanted to be as powerful as God. He explained that I would get my own planet if I was a good Mormon and populate it with souls that I would make with my celestial wife. She would be perpetually pregnant as uh, kicking out souls and I would be as omnipotent as God. He explained that God was once like me and like God I could become and then I could rule over my own earth equivalent. And yes, in Mormonism, men are taught that they get to become a god if they're a very good Mormon, which I'm surprised that a, a lot of Mormons uh, that I've spoke to, they don't seem to want to talk about that. And they and some will outright deny that. But I've also read, uh, you know, a lot of things online and had my own personal experience at a Mormon church where that was absolutely for certain said to me as part of the doctrine. At the Mormon Church's General Conference in April 1844, Joseph Smith said, I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea. This is Joseph Smith saying this. And take away the veil so that you may see. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that he was once a man like us. Very strong selling point, right? As a man, you get to be God. Best religious sales pitch ever. Very ego serving. Okay, for now, we got to flip and get to to the timeline. Uh, oh my heck, let's let's get to it, gosh dang. But first, a word from a sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Felix Gray. The average American blasts their eyes with bright screens for 11 hours every day doing research on this week's topic. Put my eyeballs on my laptop for at least 10 hours a day, for, for every day for three straight days, plus probably spend another two hours a day looking at Instagram, checking random sports stats because they give me comfort, mother. And I watch some shows with Lindsay and the kids. Screens. My life is Screens. The fact is you can stop look you can't stop looking at screens when everything is digital but you can protect your eyes with a pair of Felix Grey blue light filtering glasses available with or without a prescription Felix Grey glasses filter out 90% of high energy blue light and eliminate the glare coming off those screens so you can live your life without tired dry eyes blurry vision flipping headaches unlike other blue light uh, filtering glasses Felix Grey uses proprietary blue light technology and embedded, that are embedded, it's embedded, my God, into the lens. So there's no coating on them. And Felix Gray glasses are stylish. Uh, I just got complimented on my Felix Gray glasses the other day in a Delta flight. Thank you, kind and fashionable flight attendant. Got a lot of different pairs of glasses now. That day I was wearing my, my clear frame Faraday's, making me look hip, showbiz. 
help my eyes not get tired red and feeling like they're made out of sand. So I don't go another day looking at screens without the help of some Felix Grace. Go to felixgrayglasses.com slash timestuck for free shipping and 30 days of risk-free returns or exchanges. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash timesuck. That's how they do it in Hollywood. And the link is in the episode description. Timeline in two seconds. Yeah, yeah. Flipping yeah. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Let's start at the beginning, which is undefined time-wise, according to the LDS. Uh, Christian and Mormon scholars place the origin of mankind at some point between 4.5 million years ago and 6,000 years ago. Many place it closer to the 6,000 kind of mark. The Garden of Eden, where it all began. And where is the Garden of Eden? Joseph Smith, as we said, said it was in, you know, present-day Missouri. After getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in Adamondi Amon, a historic site in Davies County, Missouri, about five miles south of Jameson, Missouri, tiny little town of about 130 people. And what a fall from paradise. Nothing against Missouri. We're getting kicked out of paradise? And then you got to live in human as Hades, bum flip Missouri? Oh my heck. Bummer, gosh dang. Also, interesting to... Uh, Note that not only does the LDS doctrine teach that Eden is located in present-day Missouri, it also teaches that Adam and his descendants settled in present-day Missouri and expanded outward, uh, you know, away from that. And this is where man first learned how to wear animal skins for clothes, use fire, everything. Missouri is the cradle of civilization, according to LDS doctrine. And I got to say, this feels like the claim of a man who lived prior to the 20th century when the fields of archaeology and anthropology were much less developed. Teaching that human life began in Missouri goes against all current scientific evidence regarding the origins of humankind, like all of it. Current archaeological efforts point at humans first figuring out how to transition from grunts into words and stand upright in Africa, specifically Ethiopia. And then early humans migrated through to the Middle East, up to Europe, across to Asia, down into the South Pacific, Australia, and then the Americas, going over that Bering Strait land bridge. The Americas, as far as all current evidence can t- can, uh, tells us, was the last place humans settled, not the first. Oh my heck, flipping awkward. See, never be too specific when making prophecies. Good lesson here if you're going to form a cult. Learn from Nostradamus. Keep it vague. Be able to interpret it in numerous ways. Makes it harder to disprove. Then somewhere around 600 BCE, an Israelite named Lehi journeys with his family from the Middle East to the Americas. Also, you know, this goes against everything we know about civilizations and their ability to travel long distances over water. But Lehi's descendants divide into two tribes, the Nephites and the Lamanites, named after two of Lehi's sons. The Nephites, initially more prosperous and religious, but then will become corrupt over time, end up locked in centuries of warfare with nomadic Lamanites. The Lamanites are who the Mormons consider or considered the ancestors of the American Indians who murdered the Nephite believers, not cool to be. I wonder if Mormon scholars, when they hear American Indians claim that the Europeans kicked them off their land, think, actually, we were the original land. You, you killed us if you go back. Fair enough. The Book of Mormon states that around 33 CE, after his crucifixion, resurrection in the Middle East, Jesus Christ then appeared in North America and preached to the Nephites. Christ's appearance inaugurates a period of harmony with the Lamanites that would last 200 years. But eventually the tribes would fall into conflict again. In 385 CE, a Nephite prophet named Mormon had been writing the story of his people on the eve of a climactic battle with the Lamanites. Mormon turns over the core of what would become known as the Book of Mormon, transcribed onto golden plates to his son Moroni. Mormon is mortally wounded in the battle at a place called Kumara, and the Nephites are nearly obliterated. But Moroni survives for another 36 years, adds material to the Book of Mormon before sealing up the plates in 421. 
Made it all the way to upstate New York with those plates. It's a considerable distance back then. Good job, Moroni. Very unfortunate that your name is one letter away from moron. That does not help the case for religious credibility. That Joseph would find magic gold plates because he was led to them by the angel of moron. I, Moroni. That's a, that's a tough one. Now let's fast forward to the 19th century. It's time to meet Joseph Smith. Right after I address some, well, some, some logic concerns that I have with Mormonism's origin story. In my opinion, The biggest difference between Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and then Mormonism is that with the big three major religions, worst case, somebody made up stories about real people or I guess really worse, worse, about real places. You know, like while we don't know if all the miracles and prophecies claimed in the text of the big three are true, at least the miracles supposedly occurred in places where other people were there to write about at least some of the members of the religion, at least some of the people referenced. There's corroborating evidence. We don't know if Jesus for sure existed, but we know that Jerusalem existed. We know that the way the Bible talks about the time and place, you know, that these people supposedly lived in, it's accurate. The groups of people said to live in biblical cities did live there. The rulers referenced in these books did in fact rule. Other people wrote about them. There's a lot of archaeological evidence that supports the existence of many of the Bible's characters and the Quran's characters and the Torah's characters, but it's very different with the history of Mormonism. This is one reason why, in my opinion, religious scholars don't respect Mormonism and take it as seriously as other religions and never will. There is no evidence at all to support the existence of any of the people written about in the Book of Mormon in the Americas. None, unless you count American Indians. But no American Indian tribe has anything in their traditions that supports what was written about supposedly them in the Book of Mormon. Like the two, the, the belief systems don't line up. None of them think that they come from the Middle East because there is zero evidence to support that. There's no genetic evidence to support that uh, American Indians came from, you know, people who are Middle Eastern or Hebrew. There's a host of other problems. Mormon scripture, sheep are mentioned as being raised in the Americas by the Jaredites between 2,500 BC and 600 BC. But sheep did not show up in the Americas until Columbus's second voyage in 1493. Same with domestic goats. They're, they're also mentioned in the Book of Mormon, but they were not alive in the Americas prior to Europeans bringing them over at the end of the 15th century. We have this documented. Same story with cattle and pigs. Mormon apologists have argued that cattle is a term that has been used to describe a wide variety of domesticated animals. So Joseph must have meant some other creature when he said cattle. And sheep in the Book of Mormon means bighorn sheep, right? Or llamas, according to apologists. But modern llamas did not exist anywhere in the area of what is now the United States, anywhere near the time that ancient Mormons supposedly lived in that area. Bighorn sheep have never been domesticated. Apologists have argued that when swine are being discussed in the Book of Mormon, the animal being referred to is actually little javelinas, little pecoraries. However, again, these animals didn't exist uh, when the Mormons supposedly existed, uh, you know, as far as like the big pigs and then the little javelinas, they've never been domesticated. Uh, Barley and wheat are also mentioned. Those crops were not grown in North America prior to the arrival of Europeans. Horses are mentioned many times in Mormon texts. The book of Enos 121 says, and it came to pass that the people of Nephi did till the land and raise all manner of grain and of fruit and flocks of herds and also many horses. Like it says, specifically horses. Horses, for sure, specifically did not exist. How is this all uh, explained by the church? Uh, Honestly, not well. On a website called Book of Mormon Central, meant to be used as a study resource when reading the Book of Mormon, there's a general answer for why nothing that happened in the Book of Mormon is supported by archaeological records. They say, it is not unusual for primary source documents to mention things which archaeologists cannot prove. In fact, it is expected that authentic documents will give us new information about the past. And then a Mormon scholar and historian named Stephen D. Ricks cited as the author of that quote. And Stephen also says in another book, 
to accept only those elements of the Book of Mormon or any other document for that matter that accord with what is already known is to refuse it any primary evidentiary value and to render the Book of Mormon or any other document superfluous. Okay. Well, using that logic, I could say that I wasn't kidding about Nimrod. He's real. You know what? He's real. There really is a giant space Sasquatch out there the size of a galaxy with suns for eyes and the head of a chupacabra riding a black unicorn that you know, demands that you crush cocker spaniels to death to make blood sacrifices, proving your loyalty unto him. It's true. Well, you just need to accept me talking about it as uh, having prim- as, as, you know, primary evidentiary value. Uh, Stephen Rick's explanation is just a very academic sounding way of saying it's real because we say it's real. Please, no more questions. <laughs> I mean, there's just, yeah, again, steel and iron are also mentioned several times in the Book of Mormon. Uh, no evidence has been found in the Americas of iron being hardened to make steel in ancient times. The Book of Mormon describes more than one literate people inhabiting ancient America. The Nephite people described as possessing a language and, and, and writing. They were able to write, able to write on metal. Uh, the writing had roots in Hebrew and Egyptian. Um, you know, they, they say that uh, the original text of the Book of Mormon in, is written in this unknown language called Reformed Egyptian. But there's, you know, there's, other than the golden tablets that Joseph supposedly found, there's, there's nothing else. Uh, and, and those tablets, highly questionable that they existed. But other than that, no other ancient Hebrew Egyptian writings have been found in the Americas. Nothing. There's nothing that's been found. Nothing in a museum. Not one flipping thing. And that's a little bit suspicious. Uh, what the people who wrote the Bible wrote in the Bible may not be true, but at least we know that people did write back then. It was written in the, in the correct language for its historical place and period. So, ha, had to get that out there. I know it's not fun to hear if you're a believer, but yeah, it's the truth. I'm not going to hide from it. On December 23rd, 1805, Joseph Smith, uh, technically Joseph Smith Jr., is born in Sharon, Vermont. That did happen. There are birth records. He's the fifth child and fourth son of Lucy Mack and Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, Joseph Smith Jr. came from what has been described as an unremarkable New England family. I would, I would disagree with what we're about to learn about them. His grandfather, Azale Smith, lost most of his property in Topsfield, Massachusetts during the economic downturn of the 1780s and eventually moved to Vermont, where Smith's father, Joseph Sr., initially established himself as a farmer. Turns out, Joe Sr., not a good farmer. More on that as this timeline continues. Joseph Jr. would have nine siblings overall, but only seven at any given time since two of the nine died soon after birth. Story of the Smith brothers and sisters, pretty tragic. Lucy Mack Smith would go on to bury seven of her 10 total children while she was still living. Lucy Mack came from a Connecticut family that had uh, disengaged from conventional congressionalism and leaned towards seekerism when it came to their faith. Seekerism, a movement that looked for a new revelation to restore true Christianity to its pure roots. Really weird. What are the odds that the son of a woman, part of a movement dedicated to awaiting for God to grant a new revelation, restoring the Christian church to whatever seekers thought it should be restored to, would raise a son who would grow up and then have that exact revelation? Huh. It's almost like he became a, you know, a prophet because he was raised to believe that you could become a prophet. Sorry, my heck. Forgive my use of cold reason and obvious logic. Sorry to take a doo-doo. Joseph prayed. Although privately religious, the Smith family rarely attended church. Joseph Sr. and his sons spent part of the warm weather months treasure hunting using various divination divination tools, including seer stones that when viewed in the bottom of a hat were said to to convey a special sight from God to help you find buried treasure. Flipping what? 
A guy whose mother raised him to think God would speak to someone and give them instructions on how to restore the church to its rightful glory. A guy whose father raised him to be a magical treasure hunter. Magical treasure hunter. That guy, that guy would find magical treasure that God revealed to him to help him restore the church to its rightful glory. Shut the front door. Are you flipping Josh and me? It almost feels like parental environment contributed more to Joseph's revelations than the word of God. In 1811, after another failed crop harvest, it was almost like spending a lot of time using seer stones to find magical treasure didn't help farming. Uh, the Smith family moved to Lebanon, New Hampshire, where their financial situation improved a bit and the Smith children were finally able to begin school. Then in 1812, a local typhoid epidemic swept through Lebanon, killed upwards of 6,000 people. Typhoid hit the Smith children, although none died. Young Joseph did develop a leg infection. The doctors initially thought would require amputation, but a novel type of surgery saved the boy's limb. He'd use crutches for the next three years and would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. In Lebanon, the Smith family continued to not farm well. In 1816, following a third straight year of crop failure, the Smith family moved to Palmy Palmyra, New York, a town of 4,000 situated near the planned route of the Erie Canal. Palmyra lies within a very interesting area at that time, termed the Burned Over District. This is super important to today's story. They lived, it was in the Burned Over District called uh, that because of its, uh, for its, excuse me, evangelical fervor uh, of its residents, right? It was called the burned over district because spiritual fervor seemed to set the area on fire. In addition to Mormonism coming out of this spiritual hotbed, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and many other pretty radical departures, uh, departures from traditional Christians' beliefs popped up. A lot of those kind of fringy Christian denominations all came out of the same little area at the same time as Mormonism. Love learning stuff like that. Such cool history. And the story of Joseph Smith makes so much more sense to me now. His dad was a treasure hunter who believed in basically sorcery. Seer stones, by the way, literal stones used by treasure hunters to try and receive revelations from God to find buried treasure, right? Using rocks to find buried treasure makes about as much sense as sticking your pinky up a, up a raccoon's butt in order to find a dragon. Sorry about the language. Should have said bottom. But come on. I mean, it's so wackadoodle. Like it's off the charts. And this is Joseph's dad. And Joseph himself would later do this. And his mom, who become a future bigwig in the early Mormon church, doesn't go to church because she thinks churches are, you know, they're not Jesus in the right way. And God eventually is gonna, you know, have a new person lead, lead people. And her family is living in a place in time, right? Where more new religions would spring up than anywhere else in America before or since. Of course, Joseph found golden tablets and started a new religion. He was raised by the right parents and grew up in the exact right place to do that. In 1820, Joseph Smith, now 14, has become increasingly troubled by denominational differences among local Christians because there's all kinds of spirited debates about religion going on all around him. He remains unsure about which church is the right one to follow, as were many other people at the time. So he prays for guidance. The answer would come one spring morning. Uh, Smith goes out into the woods near his home and as he describes it, witnesses a pillar of light descending from heaven, followed by an image of God and Jesus who are apparently perceived by Joseph as separate personages. They forgave him of his sins and warned Smith that all denominations of Christianity, all of them, have strayed from the truth and that he should not join any of them. Mother will be so happy. No one's heads need to go on sticks now. Not when God has made mother's son the chosen one. Won't even have to flip mother's neck. Little Ed Kemper flashback, new listeners. It happens. It happens sometimes. Uh, Smith relayed this vision to a local minister and the man of the conventional church dismissed it as delusion, scorned the teenager. Mormonism could have ended there, but Smith continued to believe in the authenticity of his alleged moment in the woods with God and Jesus. 
This event, known to Mormons as the First Vision, still does not dramatically change Smith's life or Smith's life. He continues to work the farm and to seek out Illuminati pirate treasure with his father. Smith will not give his followers a detailed description of this vision until 1839, when the Book of Mormon was published in 1830. Ha! Why wait another nine years? I gotta say, the skeptic in me thinks that's how long it took for him to make it all up. On September 21st, 1823, the young Joe Jr., fearing that he has fallen off the right path, prays for forgiveness for all his sins and follies. Again, once again, he receives a vision. This time it's in his bedroom, and the vision is of the angel Moron, I. Moron, Moroni, one letter off. Uh, Moroni, the son of Mormon, speaks of a sacred book written on gold plates that just so happened to be buried in a nearby hillside. Sweet jackpot! Papa, throw away the pirate rock. We have an angel now. Tell us where the treasure is. According to Moroni, the book describes the people who used to inhabit America and the source from whence they sprang. He also said it contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The next day, September 22nd, guided by his vision, Smith locates the golden book in a box buried in Hill Camorra, three miles from the Smith farm. However, he is told by Moroni that he cannot take the gold plates yet. Instead, he must return uh, you know, uh, on September 22nd for each of the next four years to be instructed on the mission God has in store for him. Uh, so yeah, seems reasonable. I mean, why let him quickly transcribe the plates and get a head start on saving souls when instead God can make him needlessly wait for four years? Why instruct him to take the tablets to a group of open-minded religious scholars with connections to museum curators who can maybe verify their historical authenticity or guard them until some respected archaeological theologian could come along and give the whole thing a little bit more legitimacy? Ha! Mysterious ways! How mysterious, super confusing ways! Smith was told by the creators of the universe not to touch the box, but he did anyway. So he received the shock of God. Literally an electric shock. and was thrown to the ground. Ha, gotcha! Classic God move. Got him with a little God shock. You know? You got, that's what God does. He shocks people. Don't follow instructions. We all know that. November 19th, 1823, several weeks later, death hits the Smith family. Joseph's eldest brother, Alvin, dies at the age of 25. This puts a greater financial strain on the family, but even worse for Joseph Jr., he loses a great ally and his older brother, as far as someone who believes that he's had these visions. So he says, Alvin believed in Joseph, according to Joseph, and his visions from the beginning. And Joseph took Alvin's death very hard. Alvin Smith was the second son born to Joseph Sr. and Lucy because their first child died prematurely. Alvin was the oldest. In October of 1825, with multiple visions under his belt now, Joe Jr. and his father joined a treasure hunting expedition 135 miles away in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Their goal is to find the dream mind, and they don't which is weird because the wizard rock told him exactly where it was. Uh, that's another thing that troubles me about this story. It's like he's able to find the tablets. Why can't he find the, the dream mine? You know, that it could be verified by other people. It's funny how, you know, he never found anything that could be verified by anybody else. Uh, Smith does find another kind of treasure. Lady treasure, Hale Lucifina. He meets and falls in love with 21-year-old Emma Hale while boarding at her father's house. The two constantly met secretly at a friend's house. Over the winter months of 1825, Joe worked on perfecting his weird seer stone techniques. In March of 1826, a criminal complaint is sworn out against Smith for the fraudulent use of said seer stones. He admits to using them uh, in the past, but says he has now given up the practice. For many, Smith is seen as a wackadoodle, which I, I get. On January 17th or 18th, 1827, Joseph Smith and Emma Hale elope and get married in South Bainbridge, New York. The marriage went against both the bride's mother's and father's wishes. The angry parents did not like Smith's religious practices and the fact that he was a seer using treasure hunter, which, you know, is not exactly the job most parents hope for uh, that they're in their future son-in-law. Emma was the seventh of nine children of Isaac Hale and Elizabeth Lewis. She was born in Willenboro Township, later called Harmony, uh, Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. 
While Emma's brothers and sisters attended only the traditional grammar school growing up, Emma went on to do an extra year of schooling beyond that. So, you know, she, she got like seven years of school, so she's extra smart. She is known in church history for being well-educated, comparatively, and was able to act as a scribe for Joseph when he was translating the plates because of it, because Joseph was not very literate. Uh, there isn't a ton of information on early, uh, Emma's early years, but she would go on to play a pivotal role in the early church. On September 22nd, 1827, after four years have passed, Smith is finally allowed to dig those gold plates up, or at least that is what he would tell people. As he digs up the golden books, he's warned by Moroni not to let anyone else see them, which again makes a lot of sense. Why have witnesses to the greatest discovery of all time? Smith then shows his mother an unusual pair of spectacles he would use to read the divine golden pages with. <laughs> this, is, ah, this story just keeps getting better, for flip's sake. The magic spectacles, uh, yep, uh, came complete with two precious stones where the eyepieces eye would normally be. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? He's, he's wearing glasses with rocks, with magic rocks. For the, I just want to be clear. <sighs> These stones are called interpreters. Smith himself said the Lord provided him two stones and silver bows. He called the Urim and the Thurman, and the Thuman, excuse me. I told his mother all about what he was up to. He said, the, you know, Seth Stones were to help him translate the books from the Reformed Egyptian, and, and written, you know, into English. And then uh, before he could translate, rumors of a golden Bible began to circulate in the neighborhood. And Joseph and Emma Smith were forced to flee the threat of potential thieves. The couple were financially assisted by a local farmer named Martin Harris as they set out for harmony, hiding the golden plates in a barrel of beans. Now, before we continue with the timeline, there's a bit of information that really must be kept in mind during this next bit of narrative and then addressed. Gold is super flipping heavy. Several LDS historians and, and church manuals have repeated the story given by Lucy Mack Smith, the mother of the Mormon prophet. In her account, she says that her son took the plates from their secret place and then, quote, wrapping them in his linen frock, placed them under his arm and started for home. After traveling some distance, he came to a large windfall. And as he was jumping over a log, a man sprang up from behind it and gave him a heavy blow with the gun. Joseph turned around and knocked him down, then ran to the top of his speed. She went on to say her son was attacked twice more. And since there's no record of Smith rendering his assailants unconscious or in incapacitated, we must assume he outran them for at least a portion of the distance necessary to reach the Smith home, reportedly three miles away. He also did all of this with that limp from childhood leg surgery, you know, while carrying a huge slab of gold under his arms. How, how big and heavy were these tablets? Contemporaries of Smith gave varying dimensions for the plates, as well as a wide range of estimated weights. Some say the plates weighed as much as 60 pounds, while others, like Joseph Smith's father, said the plates weighed as light as little as 30 pounds. Smith claimed the, the record he received from the angel was six inches wide, eight inches long, not quite so thick as common tin. He also said the volume was something near six inches in thickness, at part a part of which was sealed. Given those dimensions, we could conclude that the plates were one-sixth of a cubic foot. Since gold weighs 1,204 pounds per cubic foot, we can argue with LDS Apostle John, uh, we can agree, excuse me, we can, we can agree with LDS Apostle John Whitstow, who said, if the gold were pure, the plates would weigh 200 pounds, which would be heavy, a heavy weight for a man to carry, even though he were of the athletic type of Joseph Smith. 200 pounds, jumping over logs, running at top speed. That's more than a heavy weight for a man to carry. It would be truly miraculous for someone to not just carry that weight, but run with it for three miles. Barry Sanders in his prime could not have done that. The world's strongest man could not do that. Remember, his mother said that Joseph held these plates under his arm. No one could do that for one mile, let alone three. You don't believe me? Go to the lumber yard, go to Home Depot or Lowe's, any big hardware store. Grab, grab a 60 pound bag of concrete, cement mix. 
You know, put it in your arm and try running with it. Better yet, try holding one under each arm and running with that. Bring in two canvas bags. Put a 60-pound bag of cement in each one. See how running works out for you. Or at the gym, grab 200-pound dumbbells and just take off running. (laughs) There is no flipping way you would make it even 200 yards without dropping those bad boys or seriously injuring yourself, let alone fight people off. Uh, Those several illustrations of the plates depict what looks like a virtual compressed set of metal sheets. Mormon apologists often insist that the handmade gold plates would not lay perfectly flat, thus allowing for air gaps between the leaves, making them much lighter. This argument ignores the fact that gold, while an extremely dense metal, is also soft. The very weight of the plates themselves would eliminate air gaps, thus making the plates a virtual block of gold. Uh, Realizing that the story is told is quite impossible. Many Mormons resort to assuming that God gave Smith supernatural, you know, miraculous strength to carry the plates, even though he never said that. But you know what? Fine. You can't argue with magic. Uh, You win. In December of 1827, Emma's father allows the couple to stay in a small house on his property. There, Joseph begins the task of translating the strange writing of the ancient golden book using his seer stone interpretation device and dictating the results to Emma. Emma described what she saw as she worked as her father scribe. She said, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, him sitting with his face buried in his hat with a stone in it, dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. Now, now what? There's no gold plates. And now there's a hat involved, a magic hat. It worked like this. Smith would place a rock, you know, one of the seer stones in a hat. Uh, and then a piece of something resembling parchment would appear. And on that, you know, parchment uh, appeared writing one character at a time. And under it was the interpretation in English. Since such descriptions show how Smith didn't need to look at the plates at all, one can only wonder, why did he have to risk, uh, you know, his safety to find them in the first place? So where were the plates while he was doing this? Who knows? It's very likely that no one ever saw the plates in the traditional way of seeing things. Like no one held them or touched them. Maybe not even Joseph, right? According, like, because he ran with them, right? But, but I mean, uh, the story, it's so confusing. Mormon historian Marvin Hill concedes that the evidence is extremely contradictory in this area, but there's a possibility that witnesses saw the plates in visions and in visions only, as in they, you know, they all used seer stones, tossed into a magic hat to see the plate in their mind. So all the people, there's, you know, all these early witnesses is what the church teaches saw these plates, but it may be that instead of seeing them, like looking at like, hey, there's a gold plate across the room. It was a very different thing of put, look into this hat full of rocks and see them there. See the vision of them. In a revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenant 17.2, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris were told that it was by faith they would obtain a view of the plates. Eight more men insisted that they too, quote unquote, saw the plates. But again, the evidence suggests they saw them with, quote unquote, spiritual eyes or in visions. Smith also asserted that John the Baptist appeared to him while he was translating the golden plates and instructed him to restore the church by preaching the true gospel. Whatever, fine. He, He can show up now. Uh, in April of 1828, Martin Harris, who has followed Joseph Smith to Harmony, takes up work on the book, writing down Smith's dictations. So this guy is an important part of the origin. He's the original, you know, uh, helper to Joseph Smith to transcribe some of these books. It's his wife and also this guy, Martin Harris. Over the next two months, Martin and Joseph produce 116 pages of text, the translation of the book of Lehi. But then Harris randomly decides to take the book back to Palmyra to show it to his doubting wife, Lucy Harris, who doesn't buy what he's doing. He'd been spending a lot of time outside the house. She's worried that, you know, Joseph had tricked her husband because her husband had a reputation to believe in wild and crazy tales. Check this stuff out. A biographer would later write that Harris's imagination was excitable and fecund, you know, uh, aka fertile. For example, (laughs) 
Harris once perceived a sputtering candle to be the work of the devil. Uh, and then this is, this is really good. An acquaintance once said that Harris claimed to have seen Jesus in the shape of a deer and then walked and talked with the Jesus deer for two or three miles. Shut the front door. What? This guy walked and talked with the Jesus deer for a couple miles. Ah, that seems like he's a real solid critical thinker. This guy seems super stable, not prone to, you know, seeing what he wants to see. Good old burned over district. So many fun thoughts floating around. I'm surprised J.R. Token didn't write the Lord of the Rings there. I, I feel like I keep sounding like an a-hole, but I, I wish this origin story was so much better. I truly do. I've met so many wonderful Mormons. They have consistently, in my experience, shown themselves to be amazing people, family-oriented, fit, hardworking, smart, well-educated, active, cool, flipping folks. I don't want to, you know, drop a pile of doohickey on their beliefs. I don't, but yeah, come on. The story is what it is. I'm open to people having visions. I'm open to worlds beyond this one. I really, truly am. But a, but a talking Jesus, dear. Treasure hunting stones. I cannot take this stuff seriously. It, it, it sounds like the ramblings of, of lunatics. If Jesus wanted to talk to Martin Harris, why in the flip would he need to possess a deer? He's all powerful, right? I mean, possessing a deer feels like the trick of a bottom shelf sorcerer, like some necromancer who'd figured out how to project his own consciousness back into the earth from death itself. Impressive, but he's not quite strong enough to appear as like a cool hologram or take over a human being. He's got he to pop into a, a deer. He didn't pay attention in some class in sorcery school. Maybe, maybe it's a deer on a good day too. Maybe like other days he can only get into like a groundhog or a squirrel. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of stories like this in Martin's history. Later on, when Harris departed from New York with Latter-day Saints, the local paper wrote, several families numbering about 50 souls took up their line of march from this town last week for the promised land, among whom was Martin Harris, one of the original believers in the Book of Mormon. Mr. Harris was among the early settlers of this town and has ever borne the character of an honorable and upright man and an obliging and benevolent neighbor. He had secured to himself by honest industry a respectable fortune. And he has left a large circle of acquaintances and friends to pity his delusion. Yikes. Pity his delusion. Not a good write-up. And this is written in a place used to a lot of people who had a lot of new, you know, religious ideas. Now back to the issue of Harris's wife wanting to see what the heck Martin was up to. She was up to. She wanted to see those supposed gold words. Joseph Smith reluctantly agreed to part with the new scripture. Um, you know, makes sense. You know, why, why did just, uh, you know, why not risk getting it lost? It's only God's new prophecy. Harris takes the only copy, the only copy of the 116 pages of God talk and then flipping loses them. Yep. June 15th, 1828, just days after Martin had left, Joseph's wife, Emma Smith, gave birth to a child the couple would name Alvin. Unfortunately, Alvin Smith died the same day. Emma almost died as well. This would be a start a terrible pattern of only five of Emma's 11 children living beyond infancy. And not wish that sorrow on anyone. Adding to Joseph's sorrow. Weeks had passed with no word from Martin Harris about the original 16, 116 pages. Smith decided to leave Emma, still recovering from her difficult pregnancy, uh, in the care of her parents and travel to Palmyra. He quickly finds out, you know, Harris has uh, lost the, the work, gone forever, and, and no one ever knows what happened to it. Maybe, maybe Martin's dog ate it. Uh, Lucy Max Smith recalled her son crying out when he learned the pages were gone, saying, it is I who have tempted the wrath of God. I should have been satisfied with the first answer which I received from the Lord. The records say that Smith begged God for forgiveness, but instead of forgiveness, an angel appeared and took away his golden plates as punishment. Dang it! What a heckin' bummer! The magic gold tablets that would have, you know, really gone a long way towards proving that Joseph was not just making this malarkey up were taken from him. How unfortunate! Smith also would say that his magic seer stones, you know, also got, you know, taken away. Frick, man! His awesome golden tablets and his wizard stones, all gone. Wouldn't be until September 22nd, 1828, that Smith would get the gold plates back. 
Luckily, he gets his stair stone spectacles back and his magic hat as well. Jeepers creepers. Man, JC, really putting old Smith through the proverbial ringer. Holy heck. Needless to say, Martin's not allowed to hold the divine manuscript again. Oh, Martin's put out in the super freaking naughty pants timeout corner list. On April 5th, 1829, a young school teacher, distant relative of Joseph's named Oliver Cowdery, uh, arrives in Harmony, becomes a scribe for Smith as he resumes translation of the gold plates. Old Marty is out. The two men transcribe the plates much faster than before. But was the book of Lehi the same as the initial lost 116 pages? Nope. Uh, according to Smith, he did not translate or retranslate the material that Harris had lost because he said that if he did, evil men would alter the manuscript in an effort to discredit him because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Smith said that instead he had been divinely ordered to replace the lost material with Nephi's account of these uh, same events. Or Smith wasn't happy with the first draft. Maybe he wanted a chance to kind of rewrite it. Maybe losing those papers was, you know, just kind of a planned thing. In the midst of the second translation on May 15th, 1829, Cowdery and Smith take a break to hang out in the woods and pray. They are visited by none other than John the Baptist. Here comes Johnny. And John confers the Aaronic priesthood, also known as the Levitical priesthood upon them. John the Baptist also tells the two young men that the Melchizedek priesthood, the greater of the two priesthoods, will be also be restored. And then when it is restored, it will give them power to lay on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. So many flipping priesthoods, so many wizard levels. Wish I was a wizard. In anticipation of the organization of the Church of Christ, John the Baptist announces to the young men that Smith will be the first elder of the church, Cowdery II. The two men then baptize each other in the Susquehanna River. In June of 1829, Smith, who has now completed the translation at Peter Whitmer's farm, farm in Fayette, New York, receives a copyright for the Book of Mormon. Eleven witnesses will later sign statements saying that they have seen the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. But again, did they see him or did they have visions? A lot of different tales about how the plates were seen floating out there. By June of 1829, the Book of Mormon manuscript and the articles of the Church of Jesus or of Christ, compiled by Olive Cowdery, had identified ecclesiastical roles to preach, baptize, and administer the Lord's Supper. These documents identified the specific offices of elder, priest, and teacher and outlined their respective duties. Getting organized now. Also in June 1829, Joseph Smith receives a revelation that Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer should seek out 12 men who would be the Lord's disciples and would declare my gospel both unto Gentile and to Jew. For the next years, Cowdery's and Whitmer's minds are on a constant stretch to find who these 12 were. They periodically sought the Lord by fasting and prayer to know. On top of being uh, an apostle, in August of 1829, Smith locates a publisher for the Book of Mormon in Palmyra, and typesetting begins. The 5,000-copy initial print run is financed by a $3,000 mortgage on Marty Harris's farm. It's the least Marty could do after that lasso whoopsie when he flipping lost the word of God. On uh, March 26, 1830, the Book of Mormon is published. The first printed copies are available in Palmyra, New York, each copy selling for buck twenty-five. And man, I bet if you had one of those, that is worth some money. Brigham Young, practicing Methodist, who has moved to the area near Palmyra with his wife, reads the Book of Mormon shortly after publication and is baptized as a Mormon two years later. His conversion would turn out to be a very important one uh, in regards to the survival of the Mormon faith. On April 6, 1830, the first organized meeting of the LDS is held at the Whitmer Farm in Fayette Township, New York, with about 50 people in attendance. Smith and Cowdery are ordained elders. Smith will become known as a prophet. That very week, the first officially appointed missionary, Samuel Harrison Smith, the prophet's brother, departs to preach the gospel in Upper New York and Vermont. By the end of the year, at least 16 men were sent to spread the message that God had spoken to a prophet and revealed the Book of Mormon. Things are looking pretty darn good. But then in June of 1830, Smith is arrested and charged with being a disorderly person for his preaching. Oh, cheese and crackers, son of a bishop. Why couldn't they leave him to flip alone? 
looking at numerous sources about Smith, we found that he seems to have been arrested uh, quite a few times in his short life. There are claims of Smith being arrested 30 to 42, or in a few sources, more than 42 times. This particular time, Smith is acquitted. Uh, there's actually an entire Wikipedia page dedicated specifically to Joseph Smith and the criminal justice system. And it cites 53 different sources, many of them from Mormon authors, uh, some of them from actual church doctrine. In September of 1830, the first Mormon missionaries are called to preach to what Mormons call the Lamanites, also known as the American Indians. Relations were not good with the tribes, and the uh, few missionaries uh, were able to do very little with his preaching. <laughs> Gosh darn Lamanites still want to come to the Nephite side of things. Yeah, that's classic Lamanite. If that is an example of Lamanites being Lamanites, I don't know what it is. In October of 1830, the missionaries taking the Book of Mormon's message to the Indians in Ohio and Missouri have stopped in Kirtland, Ohio. There, a popular Baptist minister named Sidney Rigdon decides to join the LDS and bring his 100-member congregation with him. Big win for the early Mormons. In December of 1830, Joseph's first revelation on gathering is given. In his revaluation, he commands the church to up and move to Ohio. Also around this time, Sidney Rigdon is called to be a scribe in Joseph Smith's planned revision of the Bible. In February of 1831, Joseph and Emma Smith reach Kirtland, while other church members would join them in the spring. For the next six years, Smith will be based there and will announce some 65 different revelations, most pertaining to church structure and organization. God's talking to him a lot now. In, in June of 1831, after missionaries reach Missouri and settle in Independence, Smith leads a group of Mormons from Kirtland west to Independence, where, which according to the story God has revealed will be a gathering place for Mormons in the site of a new Jerusalem. <laughs> Jerusalem? A new Jerusalem. On July 20th, 1831, the site for the city of Zion, the new Jerusalem in Independence, Missouri, is revealed to Joseph the prophet in a revelation. In August of 1831, early Mormons lay the cornerstone, cornerstone for a temple, and within a year, more than 800 more church members have moved to the area. In the first days of November 1831, a conference of church elders decides to print 10,000 copies of what was to be called the Book of Commandments, a compilation of revelations received by the prophet Joseph Smith. These revelations are still considered sacred texts, within the LDS faith and have since been incorporated into the doctrine and covenants. Things are looking good for Joe. You know, he has a growing group of people believing God is speaking through him. He's come a long way since not being able to find buried treasure with his dad, with his magic rocks. Then things take a turn for the worse. On March 24th, 1832, some growing local anti-Mormon sentiments that have been accumulating come to a head. Joseph is sitting up late with his 11-month-old adopted son, also named Joseph, who had the measles, when about a dozen men break into the house, haul the prophet from the house, strip his clothes from him, and pour hot tar all over his body and feather him, tarred and feathered. What the flip? Smith saw others from the mob pulling Sidney Rigdon from his house because Sidney was, un uh, Sidney was unconscious. Joseph supposed that he was dead, began to plead for his own life. The mobbers broke a vial of nitric acid against his mouth, trying to poison him. In the process, they broke a tooth, causing Joseph to have a slight whistle for the rest of his life. One man then supposedly said that is the way the Holy Ghost falls on folks and jumped on Joseph, ripping off his remaining clothes, scratching his fingers into Joseph's skin. Joseph pulled the tar from his mouth so he could breathe. Two men rushed out of the house to help Joseph and each, assuming the other was from the mob, started to attack each other. It's flipping pandemonium. When the mob finally fled, Joseph turned to return to the house. When Emma saw him, she thought the tar uh, was blood and fainted. Joseph spent the night with his friends who pulled and ripped off pieces of tar and skin. Man, bummer that Moroni or John the Baptist or someone didn't give him a heads up about the tar and feathering. On March 29th, 1832, Joseph's adopted son, Joseph Murdoch Smith, dies from a cold cot when he, pulled, when he was pulled from Joseph's arms during the mobbing. That's not cool. The family grieved, but there was more profit stuff to be done. 
A majority of the prophecies and revelations Joseph Smith would receive recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, December of 1832. One of Smith's prophecies includes a prediction about the Civil War almost three decades before it occurred. And I got to say, this one is pretty impressive. From what I can tell, the most accurate prediction he made. Uh, it's listed in Doctrine and Covenants 87, 1 through 8. Here's the most important part. One, verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. And the time will come that the war will be poured out upon all nations beginning at this place. For behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states and the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called. And they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And then war shall be poured out upon all nations. Not bad. I got Not bad. Pretty good prophecy. However, he made a lot of other predictions and most uh, did not, were not, did not come to pass. You know, he also predicted Jesus would return within 56 years and, uh, you know, he didn't. 1833, work begins on a grand Mormon temple in Kirtland. It will take three years to complete, to complete, measure 55 by 65 feet, soaring 110 feet high. Still there. Does look super cool. Just outside of Cleveland on the National Historic Register. Also in 1833, something else happened that we will talk about right after this sponsor. Fame, money, ego, showbiz. These things can make athletes feel superhuman. What happens when those in professional sports reveal the darker side of their humanity, like O.J. Simpson? What happens when the juice goes way too loose? Nothing good if you listen to that suck. Every week, the Parcast Network's new podcast, Sports Criminals, explores some of the most significant sports crimes in the world. They go way deeper than O.J. Some are chilling, like when former NFL receiver Ray Carruth hired a friend to murder his pregnant girlfriend. What the flippin' heck? Some of these crimes are just strange and reckless like when former NBA star Jason Williams shot his limo driver to death and then tried to cover it up. And some of these crimes are just unimaginably tragic, like when professional wrestler Chris Benoit murdered his wife and seven-year-old son before committing suicide. These stories are crazy. And I know that you time suckers enjoy a crazy tale. Sports criminals, athletes you thought you knew, crimes you will not forget. Listen and subscribe to Sports Criminals for free on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts or visit parcast.com slash sports criminals to listen right now. Now back to 1833, when the first collection of 27-year-old Joseph Smith's revelations are prepared for publication as a book of commandments. On July 20th, 1833, the Missouri Mormons begin to suffer violence at the hands of other locals. On this day, their printing press on which the book of commandments is being printed is destroyed. Other Christians don't like what they're preaching. They're starting to be considered a cult. In September of 1833, a key figure for the future of the church, Brigham Young, now a widower, arrives with his two young children in Kirtland. Later in November of 1833, mob violence drives those Mormons in Jackson County, Missouri, out of Jackson County and across the Missouri River to Clay County. The pages of the Book of Commandments are rescued from the muddy streets and bound, creating the first published collection of Smith's Revelations. On May 5th, 1834, Joseph Smith leaves Kirtland, Ohio for Missouri as leader of Zion's camp, to bring relief to saints expelled from Jackson County. Despite the confrontations and controversial nature of their movement from locals, the church continues to grow. In February, 1835, Joseph Smith and the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, Martin Harris, oh, Marty, select 12 men to serve as apostles in the church. Although the title apostle had earlier been given to some individuals who played a 
important role in the early church, including Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer, the 12 apostles defined in the 1829 revelation were not called until 1835. On February 14th and 15th, 1835, the Quorum of the 12 Apostles organized in Kirtland, Ohio. At this meeting, Smith directed Cowdery, Whitmer, and Harris to choose 12 men from the church's apostles to go to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. They become known as a traveling high council. Also in 1835, 138 of Smith's revelations are published in a book called Doctrine and Covenants. In August of that year, the Doctrine and Covenants is accepted as a standard work of the church. Joseph is crushing it. He has started a growing religion movement, a religious movement where he's a leader and he's not quite 30. Included among these are 65 revelations published in the Book of Commandments, plus seven lectures on faith prepared by Joseph Smith, which are not described as revelations. For a dude with very little education, he was very prolific putting out words. More pushback came in 1836. The Missouri Mormons forced to leave Clay County for the remote Caldwell and Davies counties in the northern part of the state. Uh, on March 27th, 1836, 1,000, and I, and I never looked up uh, the pronunciation, I realized, of Davies. It's D-A-V-I-E-S-S. That extra S makes me question my pronunciation. So know that I know that I might not be getting that one completely correct. March 27th, 1836, 1,000 worshipers began a week of temple dedication ceremonies in Kirtland, Ohio. Witnesses report rushing winds, a pillar of fire in the presence of angels. Too bad video did not exist. Uh, If it would have existed yet and they could have filmed it, it would have gone a long ways towards legitimizing all of this. On April 3rd, during the dedication, a critical visionary experience occurs in which the prophet and, uh, and Oliver Cowdery, who have retired behind a veil that separates an elevated pulpit from the rest of the temple, see a personages, a personage, personage. I don't like that word. Uh, they believe is Jesus, accepting the temple as a place where he will manifest himself to his people. In addition, they see the Old Testament prophets, Moses, Elijah, and Elias, who commit into LDS hands the keys of the gathering of Israel. And the new dispension of the fullness of times. Again, would have been, would have been nice to have video, you know. In November of 1836, the Mormon church is their first crack at banking. Smith forms the Curlin Safety Society Bank, but soon after a national economic panic begins in March of 1837, this leads to the bank's collapse. Accusations of financial and sexual impropriety arise after this. Uh-oh, financial and sexual impropriety? Sounds culty. Despite the scandal loss of many early members, new members replace those who have left and the church continues to grow. Uh, with a lot of that having to do with the idea of missionary work. On July 19, 1837, Heber C. Kimball and six others arrive in Liverpool, England on the church's first mission outside of the U.S. and Canada. On January 12, 1838, Smith escapes growing tensions with locals in Curland, heads for Missouri, arriving there with his family in March. Many of the Ohio Mormons follow, and soon there are, a th- are thousands of church members in the settlement of far west in Caldwell County. Smith makes a plan for a new temple, excommunicates several old friends and current adversaries, including Cowdery, who had turned against him, Accusing him of adultery. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Getting accused of adultery. Excommunicating people who accuse him. <laughs> Doesn't Not a good look. Peace with neighboring non-Mormons is proving elusive. Their new neighbors even less excited to see the Mormons than their last neighbors. And Missouri Governor Ilburn W. Boggs is getting sick of them. On April 26, 1838, the name of the church was established by Revelation as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By July 4th, 1838, becoming clear that the violence is coming. While given a patriotic oration, Rigdon promises that Mormons will have to defend themselves and warns of a war of extermination with hostile neighbors. On August 6th, non-Mormons attempt to prevent church members from voting, leading to bloody melee. This kicks off what will become known as the Mormon War of 1838. It leads to an unknown number of injuries and deaths. And the charged aftermath of the violence, 
Violent uh, Missouri governor, excuse me, Ilburn Boggs orders all Mormons to either be driven from the state or to be wiped out. Stuff's getting ugly. And on October 27th, 1838, Governor Boggs' uh, issue, or excuse me, I guess that's when he officially issues this extermination order now against the Mormons. Three days later, on October 30th, certified by the governor's decree, an anti-Mormon mob of about 240 men massacre church members under a flag of truce at Jacob Hans Mill in Caldwell County, Missouri. Many of the saints gathered in the blacksmith shop where the mob's guns were stuck through the cracks and logs and fired and uh, fired until most in the building were dead. A few escaped across the river into the hills. In the end, between 17 and 19 LDS members were killed, including unarmed children, while 15 others were injured in the unexpected raid. Opposition to the Mormons rages on. In December, Smith is arrested, charged with treason and sentenced to death. Joseph's life is only spared when the officer orders or ordered to carry out the execution, refuses to execute him because he felt it was cold-blooded murder. Smith instead will spend the next five months in prison with other members of his congregation in Liberty Jail, Liberty, Clay County, Missouri. Led by Brigham Young in 1839, the Missouri Mormons reach safety in Illinois, where they are welcomed by a much more sympathetic populace. In April of 1839, while being moved from one trial location to another, Smith is permitted to escape and makes his way to Illinois also. Between eight, uh, May 9th and 10th, 1839, Joseph Smith moves to uh, Nauvoo, Illinois. There he buys land for a new settlement on the banks of the Mississippi River, about 200 miles from St. Louis. On November 29th, 1839, Smith travels to Washington to meet President Martin Van Buren. He demands compensation for Mormon losses in Missouri. Van Buren expresses sympathy, but says he can do nothing. Speaks to the size of Joseph Smith's growing congregation. He's able to get a sit down with the president. The church continues to spread and grow. Even back then, the Mormon church, pretty good at spreading the word. Brigham Young and his fellow members of the 12 land in Liverpool, England on April 6, 1840, the 10th anniversary of the church. Eight days later, they began a series of meetings in the nearby town of Preston in which they resolved to publish a monthly periodical to be called the Latter-day Saints Millennial Star. Millennial Star, excuse me. In May of 1840, the first issue of the Millennial Star is published, and the Millennial Star would be the longest-running Latter-day Saint periodical published continuously for 130 years until discontinued in 1970 when there was an overhaul of all LDS magazines. It was inaugurated by the 12 apostles at the beginning of their great mission to England. Again, on, on August 15, 1840, Joseph Smith publicly announces one of the more controversial and interesting revelations, their doctrine of the baptism for the dead. It is done because according to Smith's revelations, unbaptized folks cannot get into the gates of heaven. So how do Mormons baptize the dead? Mormons believe people who have died can be baptized by proxy, thus allowing them the opportunity to become Mormons after their death. Mormons believe that their church has missionaries in the spirit world who are busy spreading the Mormon gospel to dead people who have not yet received it. Should any of these dead people want to convert to Mormonism, they are required to abide by all of its rules, one of which is water baptism. Hence the need for proxies to receive the corporal waters of baptism. So you have somebody like in a, in a special Mormon ceremony pretend to be you essentially and get baptized on your behalf and then you're baptized, you know, in whatever spirit world you're living in. I just, I wonder if a son of perdition like myself qualifies for being baptized in death. I hope so. So, you know, uh, some people, mostly members of other religions, if you look around at a bunch of websites, get real worked up about, you know, being baptized after death. A lot of stuff out there like, please stop baptizing our dead. Doesn't bother me at all. I give all Mormons full permission to baptize me in death. Baptize my family as well. I want to cover all my bases. Nimrod wills you to baptize my spirit. Come on. He worked it out with Moroni. We're all good. 
In December of 1840, the Mormons received a city charter for Nauvoo, uh, establishing the expansive home rule and local militia. After the first mayor is excommunicated, Smith becomes both mayor and military leader. Anyone who gets in his way, he excommunicates. Uh, Nauvoo quickly grows and within four years is nearly the size of Chicago at the time. The population bolstered by an influx of Mormon converts now coming in from Europe. This is nuts. Flippin' impressive. The play story is bananas, but I'm very impressed with how quickly they're building a religion. They have a vision. They're working hard towards that vision. Very successful. This, not, this isn't some rinky-dink Waco compound. Uh-uh. They're building their own city. Only around 2,400 people, but still, at the time, very impressive. Uh, today, only about 1,200 people in that town. Uh, the town has one private school, and ironically, not Mormon. It's Catholic. <laughs> oh, Catholics. Mormons built it up, and the Catholics swooped in and took it. Moroni must be so peeved. On March 17th, 1842, the Female Relief Society is organized in Nauvoo. 20 women gather in a large assembly room above Joseph Smith's red brick store. It had humble beginnings as a simple sewing group meant to make shirts for construction workers working on the temple, but it would grow into its own priesthood. At this founding meeting, Joseph Smith proposed that women elect a president who would then choose two counselors. Emma Smith, elected president by unanimous vote. Makes sense. She's the, she's the prophet's wife. If you don't vote for her, you're going to be excommunicated. She chose Sarah M. Cleveland and Elizabeth Ann Whitney as counselors. After the selection, Joseph Smith had, reads revelation he had received for Emma Smith in 1830 that had declared her an elect lady. Emma had a responsibility, Joseph taught, to expound the scriptures to all and to teach the female part of the community and that not she alone, but others may attend the same blessings. God, these guys know how to form a community. I have to think spending his formative years in the burned over district of New York watching so many other religions get going had to have helped him. On July 12th, 1843, Smith announces revelations about two new practices. Uh, first, he continues with the idea that the dead can be baptized. You know, this practice is disclosed as part of three different revelations. Second, and the one that people love the most, he decides, oh, Mormons are now pro-polygamy. Plural marriage. Hail the Safina. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Not only was polygamy permissible, but in certain cases, mandatory. To be fair, polygamy was practiced by many different characters in the Old Testament of the Bible. But... That practice, you know, had been discontinued for over 2,000 years. Uh, the second pronouncement in particular caused great division amongst Mormons, with Brigham Young even stating he would rather die than follow it. And Joseph Smith, initially, he'd, he'd come around later, Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, expressing opposition. Yeah, I bet. I, no, I, don't, I don't like this. Uh, this. This revelation, now section 132 in the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, express, expressly directs Emma Smith specifically to accept plural marriage. How convenient. You hear what I'm saying? Uh, Smith, Joseph has a vision from God that his wife specifically needs to let her husband swing his wing around town. It could, that could not be more culty. Like super duper code red, ring the alarm, get the bells going, culty. Whenever a dude says that God told him that he needs to put his not so clean wing anymore, uh, you know, in, in other wives' holes, cult, 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 cult. God's alleged personal commandment to Emma goes like this. And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none, to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord. For I am the Lord thy God and will destroy her if she abide not in my law. I do find it weird, by the way, also. Why, why is God still speaking in King James kind of language? Right? Because this isn't happening back when the King James Bible was being written. Is that just how God's talk? Thy thou hast, hast thou thy God. Like people didn't talk that way. In, in the mid-19th century, which also just is like, come on. That, that, that alone makes me not buy any of this as revelations from God. 
that that's just how, I mean, because in order to accept that, I have to believe that that's just how God always talks. Like, you know, that God can talk in English, but he doesn't update his, uh, his lingo. Doesn't matter how we talk down here now. I am thy God, thou hast, child, listen to thou, thou me. Be unto thou me, cleaveth unto thou me, heck for heck for sure, thou hast. Okay. Although the doctrine would not be publicly announced for nearly a decade, rumors quickly spread increasing anti-Mormon sentiment. Joseph Smith, by, by the way, rumored secretly to have between 25 and possibly almost 50 wives during his life. Uh, when Young would later come around to embrace the doctrine, he himself would take 20 wives and father 57 children. So that was fun about Joseph. I'm sure Emma loved that. I'm sure her parents thought, oh man, you know, we thought there was something off about Joe when Emma got married to him and whoa, ding, ding, ding. We were right. In 1844, almost 40-year-old Joseph Smith has a pretty strange year. Smith decides to declare his intention to run for president of the United States. He also announces in a sermon that those who obey God's commands can become gods themselves. And he orders the destruction of an opposition newspaper, the uh, Nauvoo Expositor. So, seems like he's gone full cult leader now. The ensuing outcry of his aggressively weird behavior leads to criminal charges of treason and conspiracy. After starting to flee, Smith changes his mind and surrenders to state authorities. This is, this is not good. This would not work out well for him. In February 1844, Smith and his brother, Hiram Smith, have been jailed on charges of treason and conspiracy because that is exactly what they're doing. They've gone pretty cuckoo. Then on June 27th, 1844, both Smith and his brother, Hiram Smith, get murdered in jail by an anti-Mormon mob in Carthage, Illinois. This didn't happen a lot. Religious leaders weren't murdered by mobs. This, this speaks to how much these guys are riling people up. Like they were hated. While awaiting a trial, an armed mob of about 200 men stormed the facility, their faces painted black with wet gunpowder. Hiram was killed first. He shot in the face. As he fell, Hiram shouted, I'm a dead man, Joseph. After emptying the pistol with which he tried to defend himself, Joseph was then shot several times while trying to escape from a second story window and fell from the window as he died. And listen to that. Shooting as he, you know, trying to shoot others who were trying to kill him. I mean, ah, not to be an a-hole again, but that's not what Jesus would have done. Right? Jesus was a pacifist. He, he let, allowed himself to die, not doing the same thing here at all. No one would be convicted of the crime. Like that, Joseph and Hiram become martyrs of the Mormon faith, and their faith continues to grow. Do I think they deserve to be murdered? No. But am I surprised they were murdered? Oh, flip no. I mean, you start taking extra wives and telling people they can be gods and baptizing other people's dead relatives and commanding your followers to destroy opposition. Yeah, an angry mob is going to form. You're doing that in 1840s Missouri? Yes, of course it's going to pee people off. My heck. Flip. The struggle for the leadership of the Mormon movement would now follow in which the saints were divided over whether to follow A, the Council of the Twelve, B, the surviving members of the Smith family, C, the remaining members of the First Presidency, or D, a variety of other potential leaders such as James L, James J. Strang or Lyman White. Over the next few years, the church would fragment out into so many different pieces Actually, prior to 1844, nine sub-denominations of Joseph Church had already split off. The Pure Christ, uh, uh, the Pure Christ Church, uh, several different groups calling themselves the Church of Christ. Oh, the Pure Church of Christ. Sorry, I said that wrong. W uh, one called the Church of Jesus Christ, the Bride, the Lamb's Wife. Most of these groups taught that Joseph Smith was not a prophet. Most of them were formed, you know, as people he excommunicated or the people that you know became disgusted with his behavior. And they, but they still liked other aspects of Mormonism and they just formed their own little group based around Joseph being a, a false prophet. Between Joseph's death, uh, Joseph death and now, over 70 different groups formed uh, out of the original Mormon church. Almost all of them now defunct. Most of the ones still around have less than a thousand members. The largest remaining group that I mentioned earlier is the Community of Christ, 
with roughly 250,000 members headquartered in Independence, Missouri. Th- uh, those are the descendants or the followers, I guess, of the people who, uh, you know, the, the follow Joseph's son, also named Joseph, after Joseph died. Well, the members who would follow, uh, be, uh, who followed Brigham Young, that those people would uh, become part of what the LDS Church of today is. On August 8th, 1844, the church conference in Nauvoo, Illinois, sustained Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the leaders of the church. Between December of 1845, February of 1846, more than 5,000 Latter-day Saints received sacred ordinances in Nauvoo, in the Nauvoo, uh, Nauvoo excuse me, temple, which is the finalization of a covenant between the ordinance recipient and God. On February 4th, 1846, facing further harassment, thousands of Mormons, but not all, leave Nauvoo on a great march west. They would form Utah. Some of them follow James J. Strang, settle in Michigan, but others follow Rigdon to the east and others settle in other parts of the Midwest. Brigham Young, head of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the main church leadership body, directs the exodus. Their winter departure is rough, not the best time to travel in the 1840s. But in four months, the Mormons make it more than 300 miles and set up temporary quarters along the Missouri River where it divides Iowa and Nebraska. That's where they wait out the hardest months of the winter of 1846-47 before continuing westward. On April 30th, 1846, the Nauvoo Temple is completed and dedicated. During the days and nights of the following 10 months, great numbers of Latter-day Saints go through the temple to receive endowments. A substantial number of polygamous marriages are solemnized in its ceiling rooms. Almost a year later, on April 9th, 1847, the Mormon Pioneer Company, led by Brigham Young, leave their winter quarters in western Iowa, head west. Young has been plagued by self-doubt, but a February vision he has of Smith renews his confidence. On July 24th, 1847, a Mormon advance party, including Young, reaches the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. And Brigham, who will be made church president later in the year, confirms that this is where Mormons will settle. He made it a point to note that it was beyond the boundaries of the United States. His followers promptly mark off an acre that was reserved for a temple and then begin laying out city streets and setting up irrigation systems. And they did plan a great city. Salt Lake City, well put together city. Uh, two days after Christmas in 1847, a church conference in Canesville, Iowa, sustains President Brigham Young, Elder Heber C. Kimball, and uh, Elder Willard Richards as the first presidency. All these t- titles. Sorry if it's confusing, but that's just they're, they're constantly giving, getting new titles or giving them to themselves. On March 10th, 1848, the U.S. Congress approves the tre- Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which cedes much of the Mexico's western territory, including Utah, to the United States. Bummer. They kind of like being outside. Beginning in 1848, thousands of Mormons make the trek to the Great Salt Lake Valley. In the first months, they suffer terribly, but then they begin to create a kingdom in the tops of the mountains. Young then sends groups of Mormons to settle in various other parts of the Intermountain West. Between May and June of 1848, uh, they suffer some trouble. Crickets in the Salt Lake Valley devastate Mormon crops, but then the fields are saved at the last minute from complete destruction by flocks of seagulls who consume the crickets. It's now known as the miracle of the gulls, and the seagull is now the state bird of Utah. On October 6, 1849, the Perpetual Immigrating Fund is established to assist poor saints in gathering in Utah to help more people join. Man, community! No one takes care of their own like the Mormons. Hail Moroni. In 1849, a provisional state of Deseret is organized, but it is not approved by the U.S. Congress. Instead, as a part of the Compromise of 1850, Deseret is renamed Utah and made a U.S. territory. In 1850, Brigham Young was appointed governor of the Utah Territory. This worried many people that Utah was headed towards a religiously centered totalitarian state. And I do think if Brigham had his way, that's exactly what would have happened. Beginning in 1850, international missionary work expands. Mormon elders practice as far as British India, China, South Africa, Switzerland, Denmark, France, Italy, and Chile. Right? They don't mess around. 
On June 15th, 1850, Deseret News is first published. Deseret is Utah's oldest continuously published daily newspaper and has the largest Sunday circulation in the state and the second largest daily circulation behind the Salt Lake Tribune. In May of 1851, the Book of Mormon is published in Danish, becoming the first non-English edition. By 1852, some 20,000 Mormons now live in the Great Salt Lake area. On August 29th, 1852, the practice of plural marriage is officially announced as a church practice, though many members have been already practicing plural marriage, as we know, since the 1840s. Anyone not taking extra wives is now asked, do you even cult, bro? What is big deal? Why you not want to wrestle extra wife puss for God? If Chigatillo had hard cut dick instead of la soft limp shame cock, would take so many brides for God in Russia. I've been, I've been Russia's best Mormon. Uh, sorry, new listener. I'm really sorry about the language. Woo! That was salty. That was an old character, Chikatilo. He just forced his way into this suck, and I did not like it. The doctrine of polygamy is made public outside the church, reiterating the public suspicions and leading to widespread condemnation from non-Mormons. Not a good PR move. The stigma of this decision remains today. April 6, 1853, the Mormons who rejected the leadership of Brigham Young never accepted the idea that polygamy was revealed, a revealed doctrine, held a conference in Wisconsin to found the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, length, lengthy title recently renamed to the Church of Christ a few decades ago. This organization you know, brought together many of the saints who believed that the church should be led by members of the Smith family. 1855, Mormon missionaries established a settlement in what would become Las Vegas, Nevada. Settlements also established in San Bernardino, California, and in the Wind River area of Wyoming. May 5th, 1855, the Endowment House is dedicated in Salt Lake City as a temporary place for the saints to receive temple ordinances. Things are about to get crazy in Utah in 1857 and 1858. U.S. President James Buchanan, reacting to reports that Brigham Young is ruling Utah as a personal theocracy, declares the territory in open rebellion and sends 2,500 soldiers from west, uh, west from Kansas. Many call this the Mormon War, right? It's another Mormon War. While offering no armed resistance, the Mormons do harass the military supply trains. Not good. Then on September 11th, 1857, a Mormon militia led by John Lee acting in tandem with a group of American Indians attacks a wagon train of settlers from Arkansas. They slaughter 120 men, women, and children in what becomes known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Only 17 children under the age of eight are spared. Young's possible role in authorizing this atrocity will be hotly debated. But the evidence suggests that at the very least, he covered up the truth of the crimes that were committed. Still in 1858, after a new non-Mormon governor is allowed to take control in Utah and federal troops march unopposed through Salt Lake City, Buchanan declares the Mormon War over and issues a blanket amnesty. But the continuing practice of plural marriage will prevent Utah's admission to the Union as a state for the next four decades. In 1862, the Morrill Anti-Bigamy Act criminalizes plural marriage in U.S. territories. But President Abraham Lincoln declines to enforce it. The church continues to grow. By 1866, the LDS church has almost 60,000 members. Being able to become a god and have extra wives got to be a good recruiting tool for new male members. The Salt Lake Tabernacle was completed on October 6, 1867. The first conference in the new tabernacle was then held in Temple Square in Salt Lake City. Today, it is home to America's best-known choral group, formerly known as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, now known as the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. Beginning in 1868, Mormon laborers assist with the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. The recent resurgence of the women's groups also start to make real dents in Mormon society. On February 10, 1870, Latter-day Saint women formed the Ladies' Cooperative Retrenchment Society to promote reforms in eating, housekeeping, habits of dress. 1871, 
As anti-polygamy activity increases, Brigham Young is charged with the crime, though not convicted. On October 16, 1875, Brigham Young Academy, the forerunner to Brigham Young University, is founded in Provo, Utah. Also in 1875, John D. Lee becomes the only individual brought to trial for the Mountain Meadows Massacre, but the proceeding ends with a hung jury, got off lucky. In 1876, Lee is retried, convicted of murder. Gosh dang, not lucky. On March 23, 1877, Lee is flippin' executed. On April 6, 1877, the St. George Temple is dedicated. It's the church's third temple, the first in Utah. A few months later, on August 29, 1877, Brigham Young dies. The cause of death is believed to have been uh, para, peritonitis. There we go. Which is a fancy name for what is commonly known as pussy overdose. Too many wives. Am I right, guys? <laughs> Come on, anyone? No? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Sorry about the flipping language. I'll, I'll lash myself after the show. That wasn't called for. No, peritonitis is an inflammation of the membrane lining the abdominal wall and covering the abdominal organs. It was likely the result of a ruptured appendix. 50,000 people attend the viewing. 49,000 of those people were as widows, kids, and in-laws. <laughs> you see what I did there? Hell! Ah, sorry, not sorry. Uh, the church will be leaderless for a few years. Even with the deaths of both the first leaders, by 1878, the Church of Latter-day Saints had almost 110,000 members. October 10th, 1880, John Taylor, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, is officially sustained as president of the church. He has revelations too. On July 17th, 1882, the Relief Society opened in the Desert Hospital, the first church hospital in Salt Lake City. Also in 1882, the Edmonds Act declares polygamy a felony and disenfranchises all who practice it. By 1893, more than a thousand Mormons would be convicted of unlawful cohabitation. As a response to the United States, the Mormons, uh, for the Mormons still practicing polygamy, on February 19, 1877, the Edmonds Tucker Act disincorporates the Mormon church, dissolves the Perpetual Immigrating Fund Company, abolishes female suffrage in Utah Territory, and threatens to confiscate most of the church's property over $50,000. The Supreme Court subsequently upholds this law. Ouch! Ouchie! Stings! Mormons are outraged by continued attacks on their right for their weenuses to have multiple godly vagina homes. Then on July 25th, 1887, John Taylor dies from congestive heart failure in Kaysville, Utah Territory. For two years, the church would again be without a president. On April 7th, 1889, Wilford Woodruff, he's named president of the church. October 6th, 1890, President Wilford uh, issues the manifesto that accepts by general conference uh, terminating the practice of plural marriage in the church. How convenient. How convenient after getting into so much legal trouble three years earlier, now God's like, hey, hey, uh, you know the whole plural marriage thing? JK. <laughs> JK, LOL. You guys, you guys fell for it. That was a, that was a joke revelation. That was a kidding around revelation. On April 6, 1893, oh wait, I already said, <laughs> sorry. Ah, I'm getting crazy. So many things. Uh, this, this act is never described actually as revelation, which fundamentalists who now break away from the main church find to be the perfect leap, loophole to keep dipping their donks in a variety of wife holes. On April 6, 1893, President Woodruff dedicates the Salt Lake Temple. It's the largest Mormon temple in the world. In the summer of 1893, the Salt Lake Tabernacle Choir and church leaders participate in the World's Fair in Chicago, Illinois, luckily not murdered by former suck subject H.H. H. Holmes. November 13th, 1894, an important group known as the Genealogical Society of Utah is incorporated. Church historian Frankly D. Richards is president. The Genealogical Society of Utah is the largest geneal <laughs> genealogy organization in the world. It includes FamilySearch.org. Why is the Mormon church so interested in genealogy? Well, baptism of the dead. Got to find them. 
Got to find more people to baptize. By 1894, the Church of the Latter-day Saints has over 200,000 members. On June 9th, 1895 in Canada, the Carson Alberta Stake organized as the first stake outside the U.S. And a stake, by the way, I keep mentioning, is an administrative unit composed of multiple congregations. January 4th, 1896, Utah is granted statehood, right? They had to get rid of that polygamy thing in order to get statehood. Nine months later, President Wilford Woodruff dies in San Francisco, September 2nd, 1898, after a failed bladder surgery. Woodruff's son-in-law, Lorenzo Snow, becomes president of the church in, uh, on September 13th, 1898. As is the custom, the new president begins to have revelations. President Lorenzo Snow receives a revelation in St. George, prompting him to empathize tithing, something the Mormons are well known for today. The LDS church only teaches that tithing uh, is 10%. Excuse me. The LDS church teaches that tithing is 10% of one's annual income. There we go. Relying heavily on church records in countries that require far more disclosure than the U.S., Reuters estimates that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints brings in some $7 billion annually in tithes. Also, the church owns about $35 billion worth of temples and meeting houses around the world. A lot of real estate, a lot of farms, ranches, shopping mills, uh, shopping mills, shopping malls, other commercial ventures worth uh, billions more. On October 10th, 1901, President Snow would die at the age of 87 of pneumonia. Seven days later, Joseph F. Smith becomes the sixth president of the church. Joseph was the son of Hiram Smith, the prophet's brother. In 1904, with continuing pressure from the U.S. government, the church threatens polygamists with excommunication. They got to knock it off, guys. Got to stop it. Ugh. On April 27th, 1915, the first presidency announces the beginning of a practice known as home evening, encouraging families to gather together weekly to study the gospel. November 19th, 1918, President Joseph Smith dies of pneumonia, uh, from uh, uh, resulting from pleurisy in Salt Lake City due to the widespread influenza pandemic of 1918-1920. A graveside service is held rather than a public funeral. November 23rd, 1918, Heber J. Grant becomes seventh president of the church. November 27th, 1919, the first temple outside of the continental U.S. is dedicated in Hawaii. Less than four years later, they get going in Canada. 1929, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir starts a weekly network radio broadcast on NBC. The program still airs today. April of 1936, to combat the Depression, the Church Security Security Program is founded, becomes the Church Welfare Program. 1947, membership reaches a million. 53, a federal raid on the Short Creek polygamous community creates mass sympathy for practitioners of plural marriage. And the LDS Church stops cooperating with these prosecutions. Still dealing with this uh, polygamy situation. Starting on September 11th, 1955, the first temple in Europe is dedicated in Switzerland. Less than three years later, New Zealand gets a temple. In 1966, Brazil gets a stake. 1970, another uh, president is, uh, you know, is named Joseph Fielding Smith Jr. becomes president of the church. March 15, 1970, we get a stake in Japan, first stake in Asia. Days later, the Transvaal South Africa stake is established, first one in Africa. 1972, Joseph Fielding Smith Jr. dies. Five days later, Harold B. Lee becomes 11th president of the church. Spencer W. Kimball becomes 12th president in 1973. Uh, two revelations added to the Pearl of Great Price in April, on April 3rd, 1976, the, visit, uh, the vision of the celestial kingdom given in 1836 to the original prophet Joseph Smith that had, for some reason never appeared in print before. It's odd. The vision of the redemption of the dead given in 1918 to President Joseph F. Smith. Then a va- very major change to the church happens on June 8th, 1978. The priesthood restriction ends. The first presidency announced that all worthy males without regard to race could now hold the priesthood. 
We mentioned this before. Prior to this, this is pretty shady. The LDS church taught that black individuals' pre-existent spirits were not as virtuous as white pre-existent spirits. To this day, uh, the Mormon church is an exceptionally white religion. Oh my heck! Teeny bit racist. Maybe should have been addressed like long before 1978. Mormons believe black people to have the curse and mark of Cain. Basically, for decades, the Mormons talked mad bull crap about how black people were living representations of the devil. Not a good flipping look. Yikes. Fundamentalist offshoot still preaches today. On April 3rd, 1981, the threefold mission of the church, as orated by President Spencer W. Kimball, outlines the three major elements of the mission of the church. The first, to proclaim the gospel. The second, perfect the saints. And the third, to redeem the dead. On September 1st, 1981, new editions of the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price are published in English. 1997, church membership balloons to 10 million. In, the, in 2000, the 100th million copy of the Book of Mormon is published. Also in 2000, the Boston, Massachusetts Temple is dedicated, meeting a goal announced in 1998 to have 100 operating temples by the end of 2000. In 2001, Gordon B. Hinckley, 15th president of the church, is announced. February 8th, 2002, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sings at the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. In 2004, it's declared that Mexico is the first country outside the U.S. to reach a million members of the Mormon church. In 2005, the church commemorates the 200th anniversary of the birth of the prophet Joseph Smith. 2008, Thomas S. Monson, Munson excuse me, becomes 16th president. Throughout the first decade of the 21st century, the Mormon church would continue its incredible growth. In 2012, President Thomas S. Monson announces a change in the age of eligibility for missionary service, 18 years for dudes, 19 years for ladies. The LDS church strongly encourages, but does not require missionary service, by the way, for young men and women. Men typically go on a two-year mission, 18 months for women. And in my experience, they seem to be forced to wear cheap suits and ride bikes while wearing those suits, no matter how hot it is, because God wants them to look like silly a-holes. Oh my heck. Sorry, that was, sorry about the language, I think. Can I say a-holes? It's kind of confusing. On January 14, 2018, Russell M. Nelson ordained, set apart on January, uh, or excuse me, as the church's 17th president. He's currently serving. And whew, my heck, we are all caught up. Let's get the, let's get the gosh darn flip out of this flipping timeline and learn some, some new stuff. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Before we go further, one last sponsor, Meat Sacks. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the Great Courses Plus. Flippin' love them! The Knights Templar, Illuminati, Japan's Black Dragon, secret societies like these have been shrouded in mystery and intrigue for thousands of years. Oh my heck, have they ever been? Which is why I'm excited about the Great Courses Plus's new course, The Real History of Secret Societies, created in partnership with the History Network. This is a deep dive into the brotherhoods, orders, cults that have played covert yet major roles throughout history, Check out lecture number six, Adolf Hitler and the Thule Society. How did Hitler utilize secret society elements to help rise to power? He may have studied the German occultist group, the Thule Society, a group obsessed with the origins of the Aryan race. And after you've learned about all kinds of secret societies, you can learn even more about Mormonism. There's several lectures about Mormonism with the Great Courses Plus. Uh, secret societies, one of hundreds of in-depth lecture series you can watch or listen to with the Great Courses Plus. They offer unlimited video access to the world's greatest professors who are experts in their fields. For a limited time only, Meat Sacks get a full month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus for free. My heck, that's a good deal. To get this special offer, you need to sign up to my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. 
That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Do not miss out. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Link in the episode description. More Mormonism right now. Because now you know more or less the history of the LDS. I have zero doubt I will get emails from some Mormons who think that a lot of what I said was extremely offensive and categorically incorrect. And then I'll get emails from non-Mormons who think that I wasn't harsh enough about various aspects of church history. Digging into the history of the LDS is very tricky because there are so many pro-LDS websites out there, very good websites that seem nearly singularly devoted to teaching a sanitized version of Mormon history. Uh, What's that saying? History is written by the winners and the Mormons are winning right now. Mormonism is the fastest growing faith group in the American in American history, according to a U.S. News and uh, according to U.S. News and World Report, which reports that if present trends continue, there will be 265 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints worldwide by 2080. And they're really good at adapting to the present time and sweeping past mistakes under the rug. But I don't think they have more moral problems than any other religions. Not now. Are they sexist? Yes. Mm-hmm. So is Islam, so is Christianity, so is Judaism. All Western religions are patriarchal. Are, are they pretty homophobic? Yep. But so again are, are, are you know, the other Western uh, religions for the most part. Do they believe in some things that make absolutely no sense to me? Yeah, big time, big time. But uh, so do people from every other different faith in the world. Uh, while I think that the Mormon church has been super culty in the past, I don't think the mainstream church is that culty now. Maybe a little cult light. I absolutely think that Joseph Smith was a cult leader. No different from like a David Koresh. But I also think long after his death, his cult was able to transform into a religion. Most of the Mormons I know are pretty casual with it, just like most Christians, you know, et cetera. And those people I don't think are culty at all. They're just, they're religious. But like all religions, Mormonism has extremists. And the most extreme of the bunch are the FLDS. Oh boy. The Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And forget flipping, forget heck. Potty language, trigger alert. The leaders of this church are dangerous fucking assholes. The FLDS has some seriously disturbing problems, and they're not associated, by the way, with the LDS. Let's look at the main details and major differences between the two, between the mainstream LDS and the very wackadoodle FLDS, and briefly meet their leader, Warren Jeffs, as well as some brave survivors who managed to escape from what can only be called a cult. Do you even cult, bro? Fuck yeah, you do, if you're FLDS. Although, although we know now that the SLDS, or the LDS, excuse me, church has a long history of polygamy, we, we also know it has been officially... Uh, you know, called off for, for over 125 years. However, a comparatively small number of fundamentalists still practice plural marriage. Hello, sister wives, which is a horrible term, by the way. Makes it sound like you're fucking not one, but numerous siblings. If you have more than one wife and your wives call themselves sisters and they dress like they just left an 1850s wagon train and you think you're gonna be God and that you're going to impregnate these sister wives, not just in this life, but in the next, where they will make spirit babies for a new earth? Well, you might be FLDS. Just kidding. You for sure are FLDS. Uh, uh, Steph Cox, scurvy, everybody. Apparently he's trying to branch out from some of you. Might be a killer jokes. Working on some new material. Uh, Stick to true crime, Steph. Get back to the chuckle slut. Get out of here. FLDS, which, by the way, that acronym never rolls off the tongue smoothly for me. Not sanctioned anyway by the LDS. According to the official LDS website, there's no such thing as a fundamentalist Mormon. No members of the LDS can enter into polygamy now without being excommunicated. Polygamous groups in Utah, other parts of the American West, elsewhere have nothing to do with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now. 
Due to the secretive nature of the FLDS, the exact number of its members is unknown, but the number is estimated to be between 6,000 and 10,000 wackadoodles. These members primarily reside in Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona, which are essentially the same town. Only a state line divides them. And this is very intentional. In the past, as we've learned in previous sucks, one way to avoid, avoid law enforcement was to, is to cross state lines. Unless the feds get involved, it makes it harder to make arrests. And why would they need to bounce back and forth across state lines to hide from the law? Mostly polygamy. Also underage brides, a.k.a. child molestation or rape. Hilldale was founded by the FLDS, called at the time the Council of Friends in 1913. Colorado City, founded the same year by the same group, originally both uh, called both Short Creek and the Short Creek Community. The current population of Colorado City, just under 5,000. And the current population of Hilldale is around 3,000. And if you'll recall from a few moments ago, the current number of FLDS members is between six and 10,000, and most of them live in either Hilldale, Hilldale, or Colorado City. So pretty clear that these are company towns, and the company is the FLDS. And there is story after story after story of young men being excommunicated by the FLDS and essentially kicked the fuck out of their hometown. Because no one there will help them or hire them or rent to them. Stories of police harassing them, etc. Stories of girls who don't agree to be essentially sex trafficked, creepy old men also being excommunicated or trapped in homes and held hostage. You know, again, again, or kicked out into a world where they had no, no one and have no job skills. These towns are fucking horrible. They're two of the worst towns in America. Uh, and that, and that is why I'd like to take a hammer to the dicks of every elder, bishop, and whatever other fucking stupid title their leaders have that these polygamists give themselves. Flipping fuck them. Besides polygamy, there's some other differences between LDS and the FLDS uh, leadership. While the LDS's current leader, Russ, Russell M. Nelson, is a pillar of his community, the FLDS leader, Warren Jeffs, is serving a life sentence in prison. Well, almost. He, he, he's eligible to be uh, for parole eventually, but almost going to be in prison for life for sexually assaulting minors, among other things. Jeff's married both a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old girl, amongst other crimes. I'm sure there's you know, plenty of other things we don't know about. He had a, he had a child with the 15-year-old caught on tape engaged in sexual acts with a 12-year-old. For these crimes, he's serving, yeah, again, a lot of time in prison where I hope someone is, uh, you know, violently raping him and, and making him eat their shit. Showbiz! At least 11 other FLDS men faced similar charges despite the serious nature of Jeff's crimes and despite his physical confinement to a prison in Texas. Many of his uh, followers remain devoted to him. Why? Because he's a cult leader who has brainwashed them. While in prison, check this out, Jeff's wrote a book called Jesus Christ's Message to All Nations. In this book, he claims, uh, you know, that Jesus, you know, is giving these messages directly and, uh, you know, and Jesus is, is, is telling people to continue, you know, having child brides and even like more crazy stuff. The, the balls on this pedophile. I wonder if Jesus told Jeff to get his dick wet with underage pussy right before. Go forth and get thy ween wet with the sacrament of 12-year-old vagina. So saith the Lord. Doesn't sound like Jesus. More on that in Jeff's in, in, in just a, in a bit here. Racism is another big difference between the LDS and, the, and their bastard cousins in the FLDS. Mormons have their history of racist beliefs. A lot of religions do, as we already know. Uh, the FLDS still blatantly is racist. The Southern Poverty Law Center has added the FLDS to their list of hate groups. And yes, I know the SPLC is having their own problems right now. And they get a little loose with who they call a hate group. This one's warranted. The FLDS is against interracial marriage officially. In 1995, in an FLDS priesthood class, a teacher said the following. He, Cain, uh, referring to Cain, was cursed with a black skin, and he is the father of the Negro people. He, used, he is used by the devil as a mortal man to do great evils. If you young people 
were to marry a Negro, you could not be a priesthood person even if you repented. You could not stay in this work. And that was said not in 1895, but in 1995. Oh my fucking heck. Uh, There's more differences. When it comes to the LGBT folks, neither the LDS or the FLDS are great. Both are, you know, against acting on natural homosexual impulses. But the FLDS takes their lack of understanding the world around them to a whole other extreme. According to multiple sources, Warren Jeffs said the following. The people grew so evil, the men started to marry the men and the women married the women. This is the worst evil act you can do next to murder. It is like murder. Whenever people commit that sin, the Lord destroys them. Uh, no, they don't. The uh, Lord doesn't destroy them. Have you been to West Hollywood? Those guys are fucking buff, having a great time, uh, very alive. Uh, a dude who leads them now said this. And again, the balls for a kid fucker to call out adults engaging in consensual sexual acts as being sinful is unbelievable. While many religious groups condemn homosexuality, most do not compare it to murder. LDS members who experience same-sex attraction can remain in good standing with the church if they do not act on those desires. Still fucked. Uh, This attitude frequently forces LGBTQ LDS members to choose between their identity and their community. But again, uh, it's not as bad as comparing gay marriage to literal murder. To go along with racism and homophobia, the FLDS is still very sexist. It practices a thing called placement marriage which the LDS does not. Placement marriage is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's modern-day arranged marriage. And sometimes, uh, you know, men's forced uh, marriages or uh, forced marriages with children involved, you know, child brides. The practice dates back to the 1940s, at least. And these marriages are decided by the priesthood council, a.k.a. the circle of pervs. Because obedience to the priesthood council is seen as a prerequisite for salvation, the arrangements are usually accepted. These poor girls are told they will bur- they will be a, like a son of perdition. You will be without God forever unless you marry this creepy old fuck. These marriages, yeah, can be between teenage girls and much, much older men. We'll learn about some of that in a bit here. People who never met each other before uh, often involves men who are already married. How do you know you're for sure in a cult when your religious beliefs include young girls being pushed into arranged marriages with old dudes? Man, historically, the main motivation for cult leaders has seemed to be to be able to openly fuck numerous young women. Is is God leading dudes into forming cults or is hard dick leading dudes into forming cults? Or worst case, does God have the hardest dick of all and these cult leaders are just following on God's plan and God's plan is mostly about getting some young puss. I hope that's not the case. I hope a pervy maniac isn't controlling the universe. Uh, Members of the LDS are not arranged into marriages. They are free to choose their own spouses but are expected to participate in supervised group dates and to have relationships within the faith and delay sex until after marriage. There are some other crazy rules uh, that are added in the FLDS world. Uh, kid toys are banned, so random. Uh, so is the consumption of corn for some reason. I don't know. Uh, maybe they're just really into smooth, cornless peanut butter, butter showbiz. Uh, some other major differences are in the Mormon dress code. LDS members are expected to dress conservatively, avoiding tattoos, dyed hair, revealing clothing. Guidelines for missionaries are more extensive, but do allow for significant individual style choices. There's an official dress code for employees at the LDS church, which are, which has recently loosened up. Women were previously restricted to skirts and dresses. Now can wear pantsuits and dress slacks if they choose. Members of the FLDS church have a far more restricted dress code. Women and girls, uh, girls are, have to wear prairie dresses and are forbidden to cut their hair. Can't wear makeup. Can't wear the colors red or black. Can't show any part of their bodies, including their ankles. Don't want, don't want to get the men folk all riled up with those sexy ankles. I, I get it. Man, just thinking about Lucifina's hot, bony ankles makes my clean wing so flipping hard. 
uh, this dress code has remained more or less the same since 1950s. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that there's uh, uh, any differences with the L- FLDS and LDS where the FLDS is less restrictive, but there is. While the LDS church members are not permitted to consume tea, alcohol, coffee, FLDS members have no restrictions. This might be because FL- the FLDS split off from mainstream Mormon faith before these prohibitions were put into place, or maybe it's just like that because it's probably easier to get, you know, your child bride all, all riled up uh, for some molestation if you give her alcohol and soda pop. Fucking hate the FLDS. It's leaders. Feel sorry for the rest. Another problem FLDS members are dealing with is the effects of inbreeding. Have you seen a picture of their leader, Warren Jeffs? He for sure looks inbred. Not kidding. He doesn't look right. Like he looks human-ish. Looks like such a fucking weirdo. Due to a limited FLDS genetic pool, some of the children of the organization actually have an autosomal recessive metabolic disorder called a fumarase deficiency. The condition colloquially known as polygamous downs causes encephalopathy, uh, encephalopathy, there we go, encephalopathy, severe intellectual disability, unusual facial features, look at Jeff's, brain malformation, and epileptic seizures. This condition, which until 1990 had appeared only in 13 people ever worldwide, has now appeared in 20 members at least of the FLDS community. Flipping H-E double fucking hockey sticks, Jeepers Creepers. Another major difference between LDS and and the FLDS is blood atonement. Blood atonement is the idea that certain sins are so serious they can only be atoned for when the sinner's blood is spilled. Now, this originated with Brigham Young within the mainstream church, but was uh, the the process has been discontinued. You know, uh, sins Young thought were deserving of blood atonement included uh, the mixing of the races. Yikes! Leaving the faith. Theft, murder, fornication, and adultery. He thought that blood atonement should be done willingly, but if that wasn't the case, then a person should be held down and have their blood forced to be spilled, but with care and compassion. And again, the LDS disavowed this concept long ago, but Warren Jeffs, leader of the FLDS, has repeatedly alluded to this doctrine in his sermons. Another difference between the main church and their weird splinter group is that while LDS Mormons vote in U.S. election, FLDS do not vote. Why? Because they're taught that Warren Jeffs, their current leader, is effectively the president of the United States. As a result, why participate in some, you know, bogus election? Now, I wonder what, what they think about that now that he's in prison, right? Like, I wonder if, you know, Warren occasionally tells the prison guards to let him out because he's just pardoned himself. Like, how far do they take this? Uh, obviously, the biggest difference between the LDS and FLDS is the multi-wife thing. Let's get back to uh, polygamy. Let's meet some survivors. Most of Warren Jeff's revelations as leader of the FLDS have been about polygamy. Of course they have. Here's a few of his revelations, things he has said. Uh, you know, supposedly under, under these are things God has told him to say. If a man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, then he is justified. He cannot commit adultery for they are given unto him. For he cannot commit adultery with that that belongeth unto him and to no one else. If he have 10 virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery for they belong to him and they are given unto him. Therefore, he is justified. If one or either of the ten virgins after she is espoused shall be with another man, she has committed adultery and shall be destroyed. For they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandment. Whoa, flipping yikes. Dudes get to put their wings all over the place, but women get destroyed if they sleep with more than one man. Lucifina, not a fan. And yeah, God's still talking like an old timey dude. Still weird. Man, polygamy. Always coming from the same place. Fragile men's egos. 
fragile, horny man's egos. The FLDS really into polygamy. There, there is an FLDS rule that says not only should you have multiple wives, but that it's actually a prerequisite for getting to the highest level of heaven. Uh, this rule was uh, given by Warren Jeff's daddy, Rulon. Rulon Jeff's, big time perv. Former church president, father to Warren Jeff's, had around 75 wives. He was 92 uh, when, at one point, when one of his wives was 17. Yuck is fuck. But wait, it gets worse. In 2015, Jeffs, who has been behind bars since late 2006 and won't be eligible for parole until 2038 when he'll be 82, changed sex laws again from prison, had another revelation from God. Now he says marital sex is illegal. Yeah, it gets weirder, right? According to a child custody petition filed in 2015, uh, by Charlene Jeffs, one of Warren Jeffs' strange wives. Under a new doctrine, FLDS men are no longer permitted to have children with their multiple wives. That privilege now belongs to uh, people called seed bearers, right? It says it is, it is the husband's responsibility to hold the hands of their wives while the seed bearer spreads his seed. In layman terms, the husband is required to sit in the room while the chosen seed bearer or a couple of them rape his wife or wives, according to testimonial documents filed by Charlene. Man, cult, cult, cult. And if you're thinking, why does he care? He's in prison. Well, he's, he's, he's due to get out in uh, 2038. And he said in this revelation that when he gets out, he gets to be one of the seed bearers, right? He's going to be horny and he's going to be ready to rumble. Sunday, 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 2038. It's the FLDS SummerSlam. In one corner, hundreds of mostly underage, confused, brainwashed, and probably scared young FLDS ladies. And in the other corner, we have a big bottle of Viagra and some 82-year-old Warren Jeffs hard dick who gets covered in geriatric cum. Everyone, get your tickets now at the FLDS box office. It is all so flipping crazy. Luckily, some women have escaped from this cult. Here are just a few of their stories. Let's begin with one of Warren Jeff's former wives, or I guess technically estranged wives, Lynette Warner. Lynette Warner married Warren Jeff's at 18. Her life became a series of traumas. She was secreted away to one of, actually, she is a former wife, excuse me, not, not, not just separated, former. She was secreted away to one house of hiding after another at age 26 when Jeff's was finally jailed, put in solitary confinement in a trailer, held hostage, her own brother nailing the window shut. But she unscrewed and removed the trailer window, ran barefoot until she reached the house of a man who had recently left the church. Her story has a happy ending. She was ultimately taken in by Kristen Decker, a woman who herself fled the FLDS and now helps other women in similar positions through the Sound Choices Coalition. Yay, Sound Choices Coalition. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is dedicated to raising awareness and working to end the damaging practices associated with polygamous cultures. You can donate to them if you wish. The next lady to escape was also connected to the Jeffs family. Rulon Jeffs' 19th wife, Rebecca Musser, who married Jeffs when she was 19 and he was 85. Gross! Escaped as the church attempted to force her to remarry after Rulon died. She took a massive risk, put her own life in her hands, sneaking uh, by armed guards at night. That's when you know your church is for sure a cult, when fucking armed guards help keep your members in. After escaping, Musser has played an important role as a liaison between the FLDS community and the world at large. She has testified against Warren Jeffs, helped law enforcement speak to victims after a raid on FLDS in 2008, Hail Rebecca. She also founded another nonprofit called Claim Red, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing dignity, hope, and healing to the victims of human trafficking. Perhaps most famously, she wore red, one of those colors outlawed 
forbidden by the FLDS for women to wear when she testified against Jeff's. Fuck yeah. Lucifina loves your strong ass. More insight into the cult of sadistic morons comes from another escapee named Brenda Nicholson. If this is heaven, then give me hell, said Brenda about life in the FLDS in an interview with a media outlet called Radar. She explained that because she wasn't from an elite family, her husband had only been given one wife, which ultimately helped her escape. Brenda struggled with whether she should leave. Her children were, uh, were the deciding factor. She worried about what the church exposed him to, describing a horrific scene of neighbors burying cats up to their necks. What? Before running them over with lawnmowers? What the, what the flipping shit? Mother, I want to join the FDS. They get me, mother. No idea why that was done to the cats. That's just what she said. Uh, when Brenda realized the church was making moves to take away her children, she knew it was time to escape. She and her husband packed a van with blankets and her children in the middle of the night. Thankfully, they now live happily on the outside and have burned all of their FLDS books except one to remind them of its horrible teachings. Even more insight comes from another brave escapee, Alyssa Bisline. They treated us as slaves is how the fifth generation FLDS member Alyssa Bisline described her relationship with her stepfather's family to Teen Vogue. We lived in their basement and they worked us to death, she said. Bisline's father was kicked out of the church. Her mother remarried to Jim Jessup, a higher ranking member of the cult. And that's another thing this cult's famous for is when like a higher ranking member wants your wife, you get excommunicated, she gets forced to marry him. Bisline and her family reclassified as ex-members placed in a vermin infested house that held 22 people. Luckily, around the same time, Bisline's father started sending back pay child support, which her mother, contrary to church rules, kept. She eventually bought phones and a laptop, basic connections to the outside world the FLDS did not want them to have. Of course not. Colts cut off connection to the outside world. The very first thing we did was get on the internet and search FLDS escapees, Alyssa told Teen Vogue. We started watching videos and we were amazed. People were leaving, having a good life. Everyone for generations has been brainwashed to think life outside is horrible. Because it's so bad in the FLDS, to imagine life outside is even worse was traumatizing. With the help of a lawyer, Alyssa and her family were able to escape in the middle of the night. She and her mother had a 15-minute window to collect her brothers and get out. They spent the first three months of freedom watching movies, a well-earned catch-up on modern pop culture, and a daily life outside the church. So many stories. Here's just two more. 15 years old, Susan Ray Schmidt married to a flippin' fuckhead named Verlan LeBaron. She had her first child before she turned 16, lived in poverty and violence. LeBaron was involved in a fucking blood feud because these people lived like it's 1860 with his brother, which allegedly resulted in more than two dozen deaths over a decade. Apparently, they just make up their own laws in this giant FLDS compound pretending to be two border towns. Having had enough violence and fearing for the safety and future of her children, Schmidt escaped with all five of her kids in 1976, now speaks out about polygamy and its dangers around the country. Last story. Uh, focuses on the escape of Irene Spencer. She was the mother of 14 children. Her husband had a total of 58, escaped after 24 years, but it took a lot to get there. Her husband also, Verlan LeBaron, the blood feud guy. When asked why it took her so long to flee, she told a journalist, I stayed because of fear. Fear that I'd be damned. Fear I'd be known as a traitor to my group. Fear of the unknown. I'd only had a ninth grade education. I could not go into a foreign environment and make it on my own. I feared going on welfare, believing I'd implicate my husband. I feared the wicked outsiders. After all, we were God's chosen few. I was 40 years old before I even got a driver's license. So flippin' sad what these women were taught to think about the world. So much suffering just so some shitty dudes could fuck who they wanted to. These stories are heartbreaking. And now that we've looked into the world of the FLDS from the ladies' perspective— 
Let's look a bit deeper into their leader, Warren Jeffs. Walking prolapsed anus. Known as the prophet of the FLDS, born December 3rd, 1955 in Sacramento, Jeffs grew up in the uh, fundamentalist church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints community. As we already mentioned, his father, Rulon, had all the wives, as many as 50 to 75, dozens of children during his lifetime. Warren was born more than two months prematurely and his survival led to him being seen as a golden child. He grew up outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, and for more than 20 years served as the principal of Alta Academy, an FLDS private school that existed in that area. There are still little polygamous sects around Salt Lake City. They try to stay quiet because, you know, they don't want to be shut down. Warren was known at the school for being a stickler for the rules and for discipline, and I'm guessing for trying to look up the skirts of tweens. And yes, not all of the FLDS live or have lived in Hilldale, Utah, or Colorado City, Arizona. Outside of his job responsibilities, Jeff was active in the church. When Rulon became the new FLDS prophet in 86, he changed the structure of the FLDS, eliminating its council, placing himself as the only leader. Cult, cult, cult. In the late 90s, Rulon's health started to decline and Warren positioned himself as a successor, took over as his father's spokesperson after Rulon suffered a serious stroke. In 2002, Jeffs took the reins of the FLDS when Rulon died, became the group's new prophet, gave him control over its property as well as its followers. Early in his tenure, Jeffs decided to marry some of his father's wives. Blah! Also sought out a place for another FLDS community in West Texas. In West Texas, Jeffs, uh, Jeffs established the Yearning for Zion Ranch. More like yearning for so many young women's vaginas ranch. He showed himself to be ruthless and controlling, excommunicating 21 men, of course, in 2004 for quote-unquote disobedience. I'm guessing it's because he wanted to take their ladies. Even for the faithful, Jewel, uh, Jeffs ruled over nearly every aspect of their lives. From the clothes they wore, to whom they should marry, to what toys their kids could play with. No television, no internet, no contact with the outside world. Jeffs first gained notoriety in 2006 when the FBI placed him on his 10 most wanted list for arranging marriages between his followers and underage girls. Although his 2007 conviction for accessory to rape was overturned, a 2008 raid on the FDLS, FLDS compound in Texas resulted in evidence of the assault of underage girls, resulting in a 2011 sentence of life imprisonment for the FLDS leader. But again, he'll be able to get out in 2038. Some of the most damning evidence came from Jeff's own records. He had a habit of having his wives write down all of his activities. He kept journals, made audio tapes. And there's a tape of, of an assault on a 12-year-old girl played during his trial. Excerpts from his records were read aloud. Stuff like, if the world knew what I was doing, they would hang me from the highest tree. Too bad that didn't happen. Serving as his own attorney, Jeff's mounted a weak defense. He rambled in court, reading at length from the Book of Mormon, used most of the half hour allotted for his closing arguments to standing before the jury in awkward silence. It was revealed during the proceedings that he had more than 70 illegal marriages, as many as a third of which were with underage girls. He is currently serving a sentence in Powellage Prison near Palestine, Texas, far from a model prison. He has, he has gone on hunger strikes, even attempted suicide. Doesn't feel very profit-like. Uh, to make you hate him even more, in 2015, two of Warren Jeff's children, daughter Becky and son Roy, came out to CNN's Lisa Ling, accusing their father of molesting them when they were younger. Becky said of her father, he realized he had so much power. What should I do with all this power? I can do anything I want. And he did. And it went the wrong way. Wow. What a tale. The LDS, interesting history. Good people overall, highly questionable origin. The FLDS, fucking trash. To recap today, there are somewhere near 14 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints worldwide, with more church members living outside than inside the U.S. now. The community of Christ also has about a you know, quarter of a million members. In addition, a variety of Mormon fundamentalist groups continue to practice polygamy. 
They estimate the, the total number of all Mormon fundamentalists and various little sects is between 30 and 60,000. That's terrible. How scary is that? Warren Jeffs is the head of only one polygamist offshoot. We don't know how many others there are. We won't know until more get arrested because they hide. I could keep talking about this forever. I know it's already been long. Man, I, th I think we've gone over more than enough info to get a much better understanding of what Mormonism is about for the uninformed. I know I learned a heck ton of flipping info. Before I go to takeaways, let me just say again, I know there's a lot of nice Mormons out there. And while their religion has a bit of a shady past and some shady aspects today, other, more, other religions do as well. While I think they for sure started off as a cult, I also think that the mainstream church is no longer cult-like and pretty mainstream religion now. Do they still weird me out? Yeah, but again, so do a lot of non-Mormon people. I love you, Mormon suckers. If you do bounce out of here, don't forget to baptize me when I'm dead and gone. Time now for a flipping top five takeaways. Oh, my heck. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, all of this started when one 19th century teenager had a religious vision or didn't. Joseph Smith was the son of a woman who wanted someone to be told by God to change the Christian church. The son of a father who used a seer stone as a treasure hunter, raised in an extremely wackadoodle household, grew up in a place, the burned over district where religious fervor led many to suddenly have visions. It's like he was destined to create a new religion, but maybe by circumstance and not by God. Number two, gold is flipping heavy. There's no way, there's no way. This Smith, you know, threw 200 pounds of magic golden tablet gold uh, under his arm and ran for three miles, unless God helped. Man, too bad that Jesus dear wasn't around to help him carry that load. Number three, Smith didn't even need the golden tablets. So why did he get him in the first place? He used a magic hat and some seer stones. And then God apparently made parchment appear with words on it. What the flip? Love a lot of Mormons. Don't care for this origin story. My God, if this story was turned into a movie, there's no way it's getting more than 10% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Poor writing. Number four, the FLDS, not a good look. From child brides to violence to complete sexual insanity. Others jailed leader. The brainwashing of their victims. It's sad to know cults like this are still active in America. And number five, new info. The Catholic Church, uh, you know, has obviously poorly handled many past instances of sexual abuse at the hands of its priests. They've tried to cover it up. This is documented. Well, many now fear the same thing has been going on within the Mormon Church. And that massive child sexual abuse cases may come to light in the coming years. And that the Mormon Church may have covered them up. Just this year, Vice reported that the Mormon church has been accused of using a sexual assault victim's hotline to protect the church from lawsuits. Abuse victims call in, operators tell them not to contact authorities so that the church can handle things in-house. Since 1995, the Mormon church, as it's, you know, uh, it's commonly called, has operated 24-hour hotline for bishops, other leaders to call in if they hear reports of abuse. And according to Vice, church officials insist the hotline is used to advise bishops about local abuse reporting laws, but through a recent lawsuit and other documents obtained by the outlet, Vice has reported that the hotline is really used to snuff out complaints and keep lawsuits, uh, you know, from happening, make them go away. Uh, last year, the church settled a lawsuit raised by six families connected to a Mormon congregation in West Virginia. According to Vice, at least three of the families said their children were molested by Michael Jensen, son of a prominent local Mormon family, and that the church knew he was a predator, but didn't report him to police. The lawsuit has since been settled for an undisclosed sum. The church has officially denied cover-ups, but are new scandals on the horizon, not just for the FLDS, but for the LDS as well. Time suck. Top five takeaways. And now this huge, huge topic has been sucked. Man, whoo, 
That was the that was the biggest one yet. I might have to do a little one next time. Give myself a break. Gonna get some real fun emails this week. Such a long suck, and we barely examined the tip of the theological iceberg that is Mormonism. Thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Vela Camp, Reverend Dr. Joe Horscock Johnson Paisley. Thanks to Bit Elixir. Uh, did another round of beta testing, uh, and the big problem fixed. Oh man, I, I hope it's I hope it's out and you know very soon. Hopefully in a couple of days if there was no unexpected glitch coming. Thanks also to Access Apparel, Scriptkeeper Zach uh, Flannery. Next week we got a murder mystery, the most famous one since the Black Dahlia, the case of Janan <laughs> Janan, the case of Janan. You guys have heard of it, John Bonet Ramsey, young beauty queen John Bonet Ramsey, born on August 6, nineteen ninety, in Atlanta, Georgia the daughter of affluent parents, Patsy and John. John Bonet, only six years old when she was murdered in her Boulder, Colorado home, December 26, 1996. Her murder still unsolved became one of the decade's most famous police investigations, still seeing her face on tabloids at the grocery store to this day. In 2008, new DNA technology helped absolve the Ramsey family from any wrongdoing in her murder or did it. Many still want more testing to uh, to be taking place. We're going to look into this crime, the suspects, and the media's ongoing fascination next week. Time now for Time Suck Rubies. And stick around for that scared to death trailer at the end of this suck. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First update is from Time Sucker in Space. This is Cody Platner with a spooky story update just in time for the launch of Scared to Death. Cody Rice, Dear Master Sucker. This is my first time leaving a message, and with the upcoming release of Scared to Death, I felt this was a good time. I'll try to make this short, but I'm going to share a firsthand experience of growing up in a haunted house. Being the youngest of five in the house, I got the smallest room, which was at the top of the stairs. I slept where you could see the top of the stairs, and being an old house, everything creaked. One night, I was almost asleep, and I heard the stairs creak. I looked to see who it was, and it wasn't family, but a woman. Completely white, long white hair, long white nightgown. She was headed down the stairs. Being about eight or nine at the time, I threw blankets over my head, tried not to make a sound. I never told anyone about what I'd witnessed. But then about a year later, my dad started to remodel the upstairs because, you know, old house. So that pushed me out of my room by myself. My oldest brother got a room by himself. He was an artist, would later become a tattoo artist. One day, I'm looking through his drawings and come across a picture of the exact woman I'd seen at the top of the stairs. I asked him about it, and he told me he sees her every night around 2 a.m. headed downstairs. Ah! That's when I finally confessed to seeing her myself. Still creeps me out thinking about that house. Luckily, we moved when I was 12, but I've got so many stories. Sorry for a long message, but I thought you might enjoy it. Hit me up if you want more stories from flying heads to Ouija boards to my sister being grabbed to the point of bruising your loyal lizard, Cody. Wow, flipping yikes. Hecka scary. Uh, seriously, man, that is scary. Man, you finding your brother's drawing like that and having having your brother tell, him, you, know, tell you that, that he'd been seeing it too when you, when you didn't talk to anybody? And even more happened. I feel like your story could be a scared to death story. I got, I got chills, my friend. Gave me some, some chills. Glad you're no longer there. A uh, very interesting message coming in now from Time Sucker Jacob W. Uh, Jacob writes, Master Mushmouth, I know it's terrible and gross, but I wanted to ex- explain mine and possibly Albert Fish's peanut butter eating. Since a young age, I've always enjoyed stinky or filthy things. I hated taking showers as I actually enjoyed my body odor and dirt between my toes. Over time, this became something I tried to hide and enjoy by myself until mom forced me to take a bath. Dirt became taboo because she knew I avoided washing so often. Maybe Albert had a similar situation. 
Finally, one day in middle school, or finally, sorry, finally one day in middle school, I was feeling impulsive and anxious while walking to the bus stop. Couldn't help myself when I saw a dog turd and I popped, <laughs> and I popped a small piece into my mouth. I don't want to ramble on, but this became a new fix and has grown into a fetish. I now have a wife and family and have to hide my fetish. We've been together for 10 years and she knows nothing about this. I'm a normal guy in all other aspects, but for some reason, I enjoy the secrecy, stigma, and stink of feces in my mouth. If you've made it this far, I just want to say, I fucking got you, you verbal swindler. I just figured it was high time someone yanked your chain since you sometimes lead us astray for fun. Keep on sucking, Dan. Love you. Love you too, man. And the first time I read that, you for sure got me. I kept thinking, don't judge. Don't kink shame. He's not hurting anyone. Well, maybe he's hurting himself, but I'm not a doctor. Uh, nice lie, my friend. Peanut butter, butter show me. I think you just got a bunch of other suckers as well. I'm sure you had some people gagging. Listen to that. Another message made me laugh so hard. Sent in from Meat Sack and Space is Greg Stosich. Greg writes, Dan, you, you smooth mother sucker. You got me good. I was listening to the most recent time stick in my car when I got to the point where you were about to tell me how to fuck a squirrel. <laughs> I had just arrived at my destination, Snake River Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Testing Center. Yes, I too am from Idaho. Stopped the podcast. Seemed like a good place to stop. Texted my wife to let her know where I was, headed back inside, or headed inside, excuse me. As I was talking to the receptionist, my wife texted me, and for some reason, this caused my phone to resume playing Time Suck. I was on it pretty quick, but at full volume in a medical office reception room, something along the lines of proceeded to widen the anus came out of my pocket. I've been a big fan of your comedy since Crazy with a capital F and a listener of Time Sucks since Flat Earth Fuckery. Oh man, thank you. Finally became a space user this month and have been meaning to write you several times. This seemed like the kind of thing that would bring a smile to that sucking face of yours. Oh boy, it sure did. Had to tell you, thanks for doing all that you do. I'm sure this won't be the last time you hear from me. Your loyal space lizard, Greg Stosich. Holy shit, Greg. Oh, freaking heck. Uh, I shared that story with Joe, Lindsay, Harmony, and Zach, and we all laughed so hard. I can picture exactly how awkward that must have been, and it's delicious. Finally, uh, last update, a time sucker writes, what's crack lacking, Master Sucker Dan? Your podcast has, been, uh, bas- has basically taken over my life since June when I went on a Tinder date with my current boyfriend. I made a joke about him being the next Ted Bundy, and we spent forever that night talking about our fascination with serial killers and dark knowledge. He then told me about your podcast, and I've been hooked ever since. So thank you for sparking our relationship. I've been trying to catch up on your episodes so I can talk to him about them, and I'm currently on the Hatfield and McCoy episode. I should also mention that I just got my tonsils out last week, and I'm very much still on pain medication. Now, I know you were confused trying to explain it, but just try imagine listening to that already confusing suck high as shit. Listening to that episode gave me actual flashbacks to high school calculus, not knowing what the fuck was going on. Anyways, I probably won't make it uh, into the next Time Sucker updates, but I thought you would get a good laugh out of my confused high ass. Well, Brianna E., you did make it, and I did laugh. I bet that was confusing as heck. Uh, Keep letting Time Suck take over your life. And and I love that your boyfriend shared it with you. The couple that sucks together stays together. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this uh, massive suck. And, uh, and I'll talk to you next week here on Time Suck. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week. Let me know if you if you talk to any deer or find any buried treasure with a steer stone. Keep on flipping sucking. And check out the Scared to Death Trader. And then listen when this comes out tomorrow, you guys. <laughs> Who 
gets covered in geriatric cum. Everyone. I've always loved a scary story. He and his kids see a black shape moving from room to room to room. And I really love sharing a terrifying tale with someone else. Steven yells at his kids to get in the car. Get the fuck out of there. Runs to the car himself. As they drive away, Matthew yells from the back seat, Daddy, the basement monster is standing in the upstairs window. (gasps) When Steven looks back, sure enough, he sees the black form of a man standing in the window watching them leave. All the chills. Oh my God. Oh my God. I think it's here. What true horror fan doesn't like getting some goosebumps? As he walks, he screams, It's the devil's blood! It's the devil's blood. What the fuck? Covered in blood walking down the streets in the middle of the night like that. You feel so alive when you're scared. The adrenaline, the feeling that maybe someone or something is watching. Another psychic told Helen about Shirley, a woman who had tried to give herself an abortion in the 70s in that house. Ah. It was supposedly Shirley's baby that Helen's had once seen hanging in a tree in front of the home. Each week on Scared to Death, I share two tales of claimed to be true personal accounts of terror pulled from old books, new books, creepy corners of the web. And I tell those tales in a darkened studio surrounded by objects of the occult across the street from a cemetery, telling them to my wife, Lindsay, knowing that if I can scare her, I can scare you. That would mean that this killer had been hiding in the attic for over six months. Just waiting. Sometimes I think I'm going to end up scaring myself a little more than my wife. And Steven's dad grabs Oh my God, the guy in the flannel shirt. Butcher dude. Ugh. You just creeped me out. God dang it, now I have goosebumps. So please, join us each week. New episodes drop Tuesdays at midnight for tales of demonic possession, poltergeists, shadow people, alien abductions, cryptids, and more. Tales that I hope leave you feeling scared to death. No one... Oh, Jesus Christ! Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeZuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeZuck.